Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Telus. This is being recorded live and broadcasting live on February 16th, 2024. The time right now is 10.42 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. That was the opening song to Airwolf, a show that has not been seen in a very long time. I'm not even sure if it's in reruns anywhere. And that was requested by Desert Runner. He said, can you open with the Airwolf song? And I said, you know what? Maybe I can. So there you go. If you'd like to see me open with some kind of theme song of a show you once liked, let me know, and I will do my best. We started a bit late tonight. I thought I may have to delay the show by a day or two because I woke up feeling awful at about 1130. Not from a cold, but uh, I felt really nauseous. I felt sick to my stomach and my body hurt. I didn't know what was going on, but I thought I can't picture myself doing radio later tonight. But it turned out I could. Here I am. So I slept it off, and when I woke up later, it was gone. So here I am. But that did kind of delay everything. I still had to prepare some things for the show that I had thought I would do earlier in the day, but I was sleeping those hours, so that's why we started late. But this is not a way for me to worm out of the free roll, because the free roll is happening. It's happening right now. In fact, it already happened, and then I turned it off. What happened was I forgot to reset the free roll time. So the show was supposed to start at 8.30 and the free roll at 9.35. 9.35 came around. The show was not on. The show was not going to start anytime soon. And what ended up happening is there were six people in the free roll with no show going. And I had to terminate it about 10 minutes in. So I apologize to those people. But it is going now. It started at 10.35. You have till 11 Pacific time to get in there. It's 16 more minutes. And there is a $50 prize being given this week. This is from Starbucks Spunk Bucket for $50. And I was going to add to it because Eric Benzamokin, the attorney we've had on the show many times, who has become a personal friend of mine since I met him through this show, but he donated $100 to make it rain on this free roll. But I decided to keep the rain in the sky this time because of the time of the free roll. So rather than make it rain on this free roll, we will make it rain on some other free roll. So we're just using the initial 50 we got here from Starbucks Spunk Bucket, who actually gave it back in March, and I had lost track of it. That's the only donation I've ever lost track of, to my knowledge. That one kind of slipped by. He gave it, and then I was reviewing the donations that I've gotten in the last two years, just making sure I used everything. And I'm like, oh, somehow this one from Starbucks Spunk Bucket, that somehow never got used. $100. So we used 50 last time, and we're using 50 this time. And uh, as far as Eric Benzamokin, he may actually be the uh, only one whose donation we use next week. But I will make it rain in some way. We'll make the next free roll over $50 no matter what. And that'll be thanks to Eric Benzamokin. So I thank him for that donation, even though we're not using it this week as he probably intended. But, you know, that's the way it goes. Just be happy the show is tonight. And, in fact, I had some people messaging me saying, when's the next show? I'm going to be taking a long drive. I'm going to be traveling this weekend. So I really would like to have it to listen to. And I said, okay, so here it is. I'll try to archive at least half of it it in a uh, timely fashion. That's what I've been doing recently is splitting it up, part one, part two. So this way I can get it up faster. Because the problem is when I do a very long show, it will just take so long to edit the whole thing that by the time I post it, it's going to be partially outdated. So I realized the better way to do it when the show is very long, as it probably will be tonight because we have a lot of topics, is to split it up 
into a part one and part two. That's why I've been doing that for editing reasons, to make it a little bit easier on me and to allow me to get it to you faster. So that is what's going on with that. The free roll, as usual, 25, 15, and 10 are the prizes for first, second, and third. And I can send it to you by Zelle, by Cash App, by bank transfer, by cryptocurrency, or other methods you could think of to send money around the web or through apps. So ask me if you've won, and I will pay you. The results have to be officially posted. So it's when Belly Buster officially posts them. And yeah, I appreciate he's been running it all this time. And he gets to it when he can. So when he posts the results, that's when I can officially pay out. And I know I'm behind with the payouts too. But when I do the payouts, they will be based upon whatever's officially posted. So if it hasn't been officially posted yet, then I can't pay you just yet. But you will always get the money. I promise that. I promise every dollar one on here will be paid out. Even if Poker Fraud Alert were to ever shut down, which I don't plan on shutting it down. But if they were to shut down, then it will still be paid out. The only way it's going to be hard to collect is if I die. If I die before I can pay out the money, it will probably be difficult to get someone else to do it. But as long as I'm living, you're going to get paid. If you want to call the show, the phone number, as always, is 775-FRAUD-55. 775-372-8355 is the number. You can also text that number anytime, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 775-372-8355. I want to let you know that if you try to call that number when we're not live on the air, I'm not going to answer. So sometimes people call it and want to talk to me. They think, you know, at some point when we're not live, hey, you know, I want to call up and say something to Druff. It doesn't work that way. I don't leave this on as a number I can answer. So when you attempt to call me, I don't hear it ring. I don't even see it ring. I will get a notification that someone attempted to call and I'll see the number. But I will not get any notification while it's ringing. There's no way for me to answer because I actually turn off phone calls when we are not live on the air. And that's just for my own sanity here. So I can't just have randoms bothering me all day and all night who listen to the show with phone calls. Because phone calls are a lot more burdensome than texts. Texts I can answer at my convenience. Phone calls you got to answer right now. So that's why I turn off the phone calls when we're not on the air, but you can always text me and I'll respond to you. So if you have something to say, text me. And if you'd like to have a phone call with me over some matter and you want to tell me why and, uh, you know, provided it's at least a semi-good reason to talk, I'll be glad to call you and have a conversation. But I've had a few people try to call me recently while the show's not on. I don't even know who they are. I just see numbers coming through. I'm just saying don't bother because I don't even see it ring. But it is a way to text me 24-7, 775-372-8355. We have the call to listen line. Now, that number you'll never reach me to talk to, but you can listen to me on that number because that is the call to listen line. That is something you just call up and listen to the show. If we're on live, you'll hear the live show. If we are not on live, you will hear one of our almost 400 shows, or sorry, that's incorrect, one of almost 500 shows. We're getting close to show number 500. We're like 490-something, 491, something like that. So when we get to 500, we will have some kind of celebratory show for number 500. We did that for 300. We did that for our 10-year anniversary of Poker Fraud Alert. We have not done any other kind of celebratory show, but I will do something for number 500. I'll make sure I don't miss it. So it'll happen sometime this year, obviously. First half of the year, it's going to happen. 
and I will promote it in advance. We'll have a big free roll, and we will have uh, some kind of major episode. We'll try to bring back a lot of the old co-hosts and other people that you haven't heard a while on this show, something along those lines. So watch out for that. But anyway, we have almost 500 shows, and the Call to Listen line will play one of those in full, whether there's people listening or not, for the rest of the time that we are not live on the air. You can also find that on the Radio tab. So just go to the Radio tab on Poker Fraud Alert, and you can hear it there. Or you can call the Call to Listen line, or you can even use the TuneIn app. In fact, the ways you can listen to the show, we have a lot of them. We have iTunes, Google Podcasts. Now, these are all in podcast format, by the way. TuneIn, which is both podcast format and you can listen live. Two different entries on there. iHeartMedia, Spotify. Spotify has clickable timestamps. That's very convenient to listen if you want to jump around and only listen to the topics you really want to listen to. Bullhorn, which is very similar to Spotify, and it also has its own call to listen line for the archives. That's pretty interesting. CastBox, and there's an MP3 of the show that you can play without any kind of external player. It'll work on any device. You just click on the MP3. And then we're on YouTube. Now, YouTube is the way I'd like you to listen. You don't have to. That's why I provide all these other ways. But please listen on YouTube if it's not too much trouble. And at the moment, there are no ads there. The reason there's no ads is we're not monetized yet, but we're getting close. But there's no ads there at the moment. So once I accumulate enough followers and hours listened to, then I will get monetized. And then this show can start generating some money. Not big money by any means, but hopefully at least enough money to make the site break even so it doesn't cost me any money. That's the goal here. So if you listen on YouTube, then I will get there faster. And if you really hate listening on YouTube and you still want to help, but you want to stick to your old podcast app that you're used to using, that's fine. At least go and subscribe to the Poker Fraud Alert channel on YouTube. That's youtube.com slash at Poker Fraud Alert. That's the at symbol. YouTube.com slash at Poker Fraud Alert, exactly as it sounds, and to subscribe to the channel, and that will help me get there as well, because I need to get enough subscriptions, and I need to get enough hours listened to, and then I will be monetized, and then every minute that's listened to on YouTube will pay me something. As I said, not big money, but I will start getting money from Google for that. So that is the goal here. And that's a very non-intrusive way to generate some money for the show. I won't have to run commercials or sell out uh, poker sites or casinos that want me to run ads for them. And by the way, don't think I don't have this opportunity. This past week, a pretty major poker site had one of their agents contact me to advertise them on this show. And I said, no, thanks. And this was not a site that is like a no-pay site or a scam site. This is a site that you can play on there and it'll pay you. But I turned it down. And it's the same reason I don't have affiliate deals from the site. Because I want to feel free to criticize any site when they do something wrong. And if I run ads for them, not only is it kind of a conflict of interest and not only can it be hypocritical at times, but also I could be entering agreements with them not to do it. So I don't want to even get into that. I want to feel free to say what I'm going to say. I don't have it in for any sites. I'm not trying to ruin any sites or trash any sites, but I want to be able to tell the truth and not feel any kind of pressure not to. So I'm not taking those ads. I had the opportunity this week to do it. And I said no. 
So it's better that I don't have ads here. I don't mind running ads for things that are unrelated to anything that I would criticize or, you know, even some kind of small promotion or whatever that a major organization is running that really isn't controversial. Like we, I once even took a little bit of money from World Series of Poker for a little promotion that they were running. They approached me and I did it for a short time. Didn't get a lot of money, but yeah, I took it. You know, why not? And I felt fine about that. You know, I, I play the World Series of Poker. I have nothing against the World Series of Poker, of course. And as you've heard, when there's something to criticize, I will criticize it. And I never had to enter any agreements not to say anything critical of them. Otherwise, I wouldn't have taken the money. But that was just for like a few months. But for the most part, we don't run ads here. We have the Amazon banner at the bottom where people click on it. And if they make a purchase after clicking on it, then I get a small percentage of their purchase. I don't see who they are, but I get some money from it. That's the only way I've been really generating any money. But that's not very much money. It's really very small money. And it doesn't even pay for the site or come close. Hopefully, YouTube will start paying me something when we get there. It'll be sometime this year, sometime early this year when we get there. But you can help me get there faster by listening on YouTube and at least by subscribing and then liking the page the way that can help. Or liking both the page, if that's possible. I'm not sure if it's possible to like the whole page. But if you at least like the videos, whether you listen or not, that also helps because that makes them more visible and then other people will find it more easily when they're searching for poker podcasts to listen to, and that'll also generate more listeners and subscribers. So please like the videos, please subscribe, and please listen on YouTube if it's not too much trouble. If you really don't want to listen on YouTube, I understand. That's why I still provide the other ways. I'm just mentioning it'll help. Now, once we get monetized, at that point, there's going to have ads on YouTube. So... You know, if you don't want to deal with the ads, then I understand. When people listen on there at that point, it'll directly make me money. But if you don't want to hear ads, that's fine. You don't have to at that point. But right now, there's no ads because I'm not monetized. So right now, it's easy. Right now, it plays the exact same way as it would on one of the podcasting apps. So I just wanted to put that out there again. Try to get those numbers up. We are moving towards it. There's a chat room. I see a few people in there. Uh-oh. Oh, uh-oh. Okay. Uh, I was just informed of something in the chat room. That was very embarrassing. I'm not going to edit this out. I'm going to admit this now, and it'll be left in the archives. The free roll is not working. <laughs> so I guess when I cancel that the date auto-reset, I always check that this doesn't happen, and I messed up. Okay, I'm sorry about that. So let me fix this right now. So I guess the good news is you have extra time to enter the free roll. The bad news is if you've been sitting here waiting to play it, you've been frustrated. But it set itself to a date next week when I canceled it, and I forgot that it does this. So I'm going to make it now start at 11.05 p.m. So you do have until now 11.30 p.m. to get into that free roll, and it should be a small field. Someone's claiming that radio says network error. <laughs> That's the last thing I need right now is a network error. Why is there a network error? I'll have to look into later why this happened. I tested this before. Like, not today, but I tested it like a week ago, and it was working. I don't know what happened here. But yeah, they're right. It wasn't working. I tried it on my end, too. 
All right. Sorry about that. Well, we do have the free roll going. Start at 11.05. You have until 11.30 p.m. Here's the agenda, and then we will get going. Who is the number one poker player in the world? Well, there's some debate about that, but let's not discuss that specifically. Let's discuss more who's number one in a certain category. And no, I don't mean who's the best no-limit hold'em player or best tournament player or best PLO player or even the best limit hold'em player. I'm not talking about that category. And I'm not going to discuss who's the best female player, who's the best male player, who's the best young player, who's the best old player, who's the best black player, who's the best Jewish player, who's the best gay player. No, 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 not that either. I want to have a discussion of who is the number one Todd in poker. (laughs) I'm serious. Who's the number one Todd in poker? Uh, I know what you're thinking. And it's not me. I bet you're thinking Todd Brunson, right? Well, we're going to ask Google what they think. Who is the most prominent Todd in poker? And I will tell you what the answer is. Then we're going to have another Sean Perry segment. Now, we had a Sean Perry segment before about the whole thing with the Circa contest and how he wouldn't chop and all the coverage he got. In fact, there was even a Las Vegas Review-Journal article about him. But I've had some people texting me saying, you've got to do more on Sean Perry. He's become a very prominent figure on Twitter. There's been a lot of controversy about him. There's a lot of people who hate him. There's a lot of people who want to see him exposed and believe he's a scammer, and they think I have not covered him enough. And you know what? They're right. I haven't covered him enough. So we're going to have another Sean Perry segment where I will tell you everything that I believe about him. And when I say what I believe about him, that's what I mean. I don't have hard evidence of anything I say, but I have some educated guesses. So we're going to do a Sean Perry segment where I tell you about what's been going on with him lately his background, and what I believe the whole deal is with him. He's the one who claims to be the greatest sports better in the world, who's winning millions every day betting sports, and he's just unstoppable according to his own claims. He runs an expensive tout service where you can buy his picks now. So we'll discuss Sean Perry at length, and maybe by the end of that, you'll understand my beliefs and understandings about him. The World Series of Poker posted their 2024 summer schedule. This was very, very anticipated. In fact, I've never seen the schedule as anticipated as it is this year for some reason. I don't know why it's so much more anticipated in 2024 compared to other years, but everybody on Twitter wanted to see the World Series of Poker schedule, and then when it was released, then there's been a ton of talk about it. So, of course, on the day it was released, we do have to talk about it on this show, and I will be there as I have been every year except for 2020. So I will go over some things that I noticed about the schedule. And that's a pretty timely segment, given that it was just dropped this morning. Then we're going to do a few GG Poker topics. Phil Helmuth and Daniel Negreanu, especially Helmuth, want to see Ike Haxton take off the N95 mask at major poker events. Ike Haxton, who's been very successful the last few years, he's been around in poker for a while, but in the last few years, he's really taken off. And he wears this very big and obnoxious looking N95 mask. Phil said that he doesn't like Ike wearing that mask, and it provides him an advantage of concealing facial tells. 
And a big debate started about this. So we will discuss Phil Helmuth, Ike Haxton, and even Negranu, who commented on it on Helmuth's side regarding Ike Haxton's mask. And I'll tell you what side I'm on. Some people wanted me to give an update on the Anthony Zinno backpack situation. Any new news as far as that? Well, yes, there is. Zinno finally made a statement. He made a public statement on Twitter regarding the backpack that he was alleged to have stolen and then taken money out of and then returned with $19,000 gone from it. So I'll read you his statement and I'll discuss what I think of the statement. And by the way, Zeno is still messaging me occasionally on Twitter. We still haven't had a phone call or anything, but he has occasionally messaged me since our last show. And he did listen to the last show, by the way, when I discussed him. Okay, I'm recording this actually during editing. I'm just letting you know I cut out a number of description to the topics that are not going to be in this part. This is a two-part show, so there's no point for you to listen to a long description of things you're not going to hear in part one. But just to let you know what I have moved over to part two, that includes three GG Poker-related topics, a topic about Matt Berkey and Daniel Negreanu feuding on Twitter involving a comment that Matt Berkey made about Jonathan Little and then Jonathan Little's subsequent tournament wins. Also, a guy who claims that Party Poker stole 707000 out of his account. The Garrett Adelstein and Ryan Feldman Twitter Spaces Smackdown. That's pretty interesting and a lot of heated rhetoric between the two of them on Spaces. An update about the Jacksonville Jaguars story where an employee had embezzled over $20 million and the Jaguars wanting their money back. I did a review of Whataburger in Las Vegas, which just recently opened, and I finished off with some discussion about a recent lawsuit involving the Borgata and whether they are going to be held responsible for allowing a compulsive gambler to keep gambling there. So those are the topics that I moved over to part two. They weren't all in this exact order, so I kind of picked and chose what I felt should be in part one. And the topics you heard described in more detail before this are the ones you're going to hear in part one. The rest, the ones I just said, will be in part two. Okay, so let's discuss who is the best Todd in poker. Or maybe not who's the best, but who's the most prominent Todd in poker. Yeah, because best is very subjective. How do you define who's the best player? By their Hendon Mob tournament results, by their return on investment in tournaments, which is pretty much impossible to determine for players other than yourself, or their reputation as far as their skill in poker, or their longevity in the game, or their ability to beat tough competition, or their ability to beat high limits. There's a lot of ways you can figure out who is the best in your opinion, but that's not absolute. So let's not focus on opinions here. Let's focus on absolutes. So who's the most prominent in poker? Who's the most prominent Todd in poker is the question. And that's easier to figure out because most prominent just means who's the one you will think of when you hear that name? Who's the one the typical poker player will think of when you hear that name? Who's the one who seems to be noticed the most in poker with that name, with the name Todd? And I'm talking about the first name Todd. We're not talking about Eugene Todd, who is a Todd in poker in last name, but that doesn't count. 
I'm not talking about Jared Jaffe, who apparently has Todd as his middle name. He doesn't count either because he goes by Jared. But who's the most prominent Todd in poker? Now, obviously, I'm up there because there aren't that many prominent Todds in poker. And people in poker knew who I am. I'm not saying everybody in poker does, but a lot of people do. So who is the most prominent Todd in poker, and how do we determine that? So rather than walking around the poker rooms and asking who's the most prominent Todd in poker and taking a poll, which wouldn't be very scientific, why don't we just use Google? Why don't we just Google Todd space poker? Go do it yourself. Todd poker with a space in between. I just did that right now. And you can do it too. Now, keep in mind, you won't get the same Google results for every person. Google, for whatever reason, sorts the results differently for different people. So this may not be the way it shows for you, but this is the way it shows for me and the majority of people that I have asked, the vast majority. So I'm looking at it right now as I broadcast. I typed Todd Space Poker and hit enter. The number one return, Todd Wittellis. The number two return, Todd Wittellis. Okay, not an appropriate sound effect, but that's the truth. I am the number one and number two result for Todd Poker. I'm not kidding. Surprised me too. I had someone on the forum ask me, oh, what are you doing? Like Googling this all the time and you finally hit number one? No. In fact, this is the first time I looked it up a few days ago. Did I do some kind of SEO trick to get myself up there? No. In fact, it is not Poker Fraud Alert that shows up if you Google Todd Poker. It is first my Wikipedia page and second my Twitter. So I can't manipulate those. I'm sure your next question is, what about Todd Brunson? Isn't Todd Brunson more well-known in poker than me? Isn't he more prominent than me? He's Doyle's son. He's been around in poker longer than me. So why wouldn't Todd Brunson be result number one? And my answer is, I don't know. To be honest, he should be, but he's not. I am number one and number two, he's number three. For a few people, they're getting Brunson as number one. And they're trying to rub it in my face. Ah, yeah, you're lying. It's Brunson. But you can go take a look. I even tweeted about this and people posted screenshots verifying it. And for you, it'll probably come up with me as number one as well. So yes, I am the number one Todd in poker, according to Google. That's just a fact. I mean, Google doesn't lie, does it? If you Google Todd poker... I'm the first two results, not just the first result, the first two results. Very surprising. Now, what made me look this up? Because I'd never looked it up before, but what made me look this up? I was just kind of sitting there and I realized there just aren't many well-known Todds in poker. So I thought, well, given that, I've got to be like on the front page of Google if you just do Todd poker. And before I did that, I thought to myself... If I'm in a poker room and someone says, what's your name, which has happened before, and I say, my name is Todd, and then I don't ever tell them more about myself, and if I'm not wearing a poker fraud alert hat or they don't notice I'm wearing that hat, so they don't associate me with that, if someone later goes to Google Todd poker, will they be able to deduce who I am? And I figured probably yes, because there's not many prominent Todds in poker. 
So I Googled it and wondered what would have shown. I couldn't believe that I was number one and number two. It's crazy. Now, what could be the reason for this? Why would I be ahead of Todd Brunson? Why would Google rank me this way? Well, I think it's because of my activity on Twitter. Twitter gets a lot of credit on Google since it's such a huge site. So when Twitter notices an active account, or sorry, so when Google notices an active account on Twitter, it will tend to list that as the top or one of the top results for that subject. So it probably noticed my activity on Twitter and then combine that with the fact that there's a Wikipedia page of me about poker and probably sees other poker results having to do with my name, such as the Hendon Mob, such as Poker News, whatever. So Google can figure out that I am closely associated with poker and it sees that I have an active Twitter and Google determines that based upon all that, that I'm the most prominent Todd because I do tweet more about poker than Todd Brunson does. So Google doesn't really think about whether people know Todd Brunson's name better than my name. So they do. There's a lot more people that know who Todd Brunson is than Todd would tell us. And I have to imagine that's always going to be the case. But as far as Google's concerned, it thinks I'm more prominent. And the truth is, online, I probably am more prominent. Online, I am the more prominent Todd because I'm like right there in all these stories of the day because I get involved in discussing them. If it's some sort of scandal or scam going on, I throw myself into it to help solve it. I cover it on my show. I cover it on my forum. And Todd Brunson doesn't do these things. Todd Brunson is mainly focused upon running his restaurant in Las Vegas and then secondarily plays poker. But he doesn't throw himself into all the poker controversies and stories of the day as I do. So as far as an online presence, I have a stronger one than Todd Brunson does. So my guess is that is why I am the number one Todd in poker, according to Google. I showed it to Benjamin. He was impressed. Because it's one thing to hear your dad plays poker, but he just entered Todd space poker and he sees Google spits out my name as number one and number two. That's a different story. So of all the Todds in the world that are associated with poker, Google believes that I'm the most prominent one. Go try it yourself. Before I finish this topic, I want to discuss the name Todd and why there are not that many Todds in poker. Think of the Todds you know besides me, and think if there are any that are really old or under 40. I bet the answer would be no. You probably don't know any Todds who are 80. You probably don't know any Todds who are 30. I have a feeling that every Todd you know is between 40 and 65. So it's very much a middle-aged name at this point. Whenever I see a Todd online, before I even see a picture of him, I'm just about sure he's middle-aged, and every time I see a picture, it's confirmed. <laughs> it's so reliable, and I've noticed that before even Googling Todd Poker or anything. Like, I've just noticed when I see a Todd online, I don't even have to look at the picture. I know it's a middle-aged guy, and every single time it is. Every single time, he's not that far from my age, and a lot of times, he's very close to my age. So there's no young Todds, and there's no old Todds. Everybody's middle-aged. So what's the reason for this? Well, Todd is one of those names that had a relatively short stint of popularity 
where it rose up very quickly for baby boys being named Todd. And then it went down pretty quickly. Now there's just about no kids named Todd that are born. In 2018, the last year I have data for this, only 156 baby boys in all of the U.S. were named Todd. 156, that's it. So Todd rocketed to popularity in the early 1960s, and then it peaked in the late 60s. And then after that, it started to decline steadily in popularity. It didn't fall off a cliff, but just every year got less and less popular. When I was born in 1972... It was still the 31st most popular boy name in the U.S. for babies being born that year. So it was still a fairly common name. My mom told me that she did not want to pick an extremely common name, like Christopher at the time, because she didn't want me to be one of a whole lot of boys with the same name, but she didn't want to pick some kind of outlandish name either that would be very unusual. So she settled on Todd, which was a semi-popular name, but wasn't really popular. By 1992, 20 years later, there were one-seventh as many boys being named Todd in the U.S. compared to when I was born in 1972. So it had declined over 85% in those 20 years. And it was the 217th most popular name at that point, in 92. So I'm talking about people now who are in their early 30s. In 2018... As I said, only 156 babies were born, and it was the 1,201st most popular name for boys in the U.S. 156 Todds being born in a year in 2018 was the lowest since 1942, when it was slightly lower than that. But keep in mind, the U.S. population was much lower in 1942, so the percentage of Todds was still higher in 42 than it was in 2018. I have to imagine in 2024, the number has even gone down much further. Soon enough, there's going to be just about no Todds anymore. I wonder if the Todds being born now are just being named after their dads or after their grandfathers. So maybe the Todds being born now are Todd something the third or Todd something junior. So there's not young Todds out there. Even in 92, the name had declined tremendously. And yet prior to 1960, it was not a very popular name. As I said, in 1942, there were almost no Todds. So, as I said, you're not going to have many senior citizens named Todd, and you're not going to have young people named Todd. So, what does this have to do with poker? Well, let's look at poker's trajectory and who is currently playing and who's currently a prominent player. So, you really don't have any old-school Todds from way back. First of all, because, again, before 1960, there were not many Todds being born. And second, they're just weren't that many that got into poker. So you have Todd Brunson who got into it through his father, but that's about it. Now the Todds around my age, yeah, there's me, obviously, and there's another Todd who is an L.A. player, an Asian guy named Todd Bui. I've met him before. He won a bracelet as well. And there was Todd Terry who unfortunately passed away. So he was a prominent Todd in poker, but is no longer with us. And that's pretty much it. Besides me, Brunson, Todd Bui, and the now departed Todd Terry, I don't know of any other Todds in poker. I'm not saying there's none in poker that are playing at all. I'm just saying that they're not known players. 
And think back to the poker boom in the 2000s. That was largely fueled by Chris Moneymaker winning the World Series of Poker in 03 and by the whole cards being shown on TV, which made a lot of people get interested in it as well because it became fun for people to watch. So a lot of the people entering then who stayed around were younger. The middle-aged and older people who entered just didn't have time to hone their game and become good players. These were recreational players who played because they saw it on TV, and they lost a lot of money, and they quit. So those players are not around anymore. The ones who endured those years, who have not already been in the game prior to that, those people were younger for the most part. The people who entered in the 2000s are mostly younger. So most of them were too young to be named Todd, or at least they were young enough to where Todd was becoming less and less common. And that is why today, if you look at who is playing the high roller events and who's like a really prominent player these days, who came up after all the originals? I'm not talking about the Negreanu types and Phil Ivey and Phil Helmuth and all those legacy players. I'm not talking about them, but the ones who rose up in the 2000s of who's still prominent today or the 2010s, like these are all people you know, kind of around late 30s, early 40s. That's kind of the age they, they are, kind of early middle age or slightly below middle age, whatever you want to define that. But they're not that likely to be named Todd because after 1980, there weren't that many Todd's being named that anymore when they were born. And most of these people were born after 1980. So the poker players who endured those years, the ones who found it during the boom, tended to be younger. And again, that was because the middle-aged people just didn't really have the time to put into perfecting their game. So the result is, without a big older group to have been in before, and without the younger group to have risen up and stayed in the game, there just aren't many Todds in poker. I'm sure we have plenty of recreational Todds in poker, but they're just not well-known players. If you were a Todd who listens to this show, please let me know. I think we have some, based upon I've seen my Twitter following. I've seen some Todds liking my posts and stuff, so I have to imagine these might be radio listeners. So if you're a Todd who listens, please let me know. And tell me your age. I bet it won't be too far from my age, which is 52. But yeah, I'm the number one Todd in poker, according to Google. Isn't that a good first topic of all the big things happening now? First topics about me being the number one Todd in poker. I know that's what you were waiting for. I know that's what you wanted to hear me give my take on, right? Well, that was the number one topic because I'm the number one Todd. Let's move on. Let's talk about Sean. Sean is a name that also has declined, but not as much as Todd. The Sean we're going to talk about here is Sean Perry, who is not an older guy. Sean Perry is a young guy. In fact, I played against Sean Perry's father, Ralph, when I won my one and only bracelet in 2005. Sean Perry's dad, Ralph, was at my final table. I think he went out like ninth. He didn't get that deep into the final table, but he was at the final table. I've never played with Sean. I've never met Sean. But Sean has become the most prominent of the Perrys by far, at least in recent times. And Sean Perry is someone who is universally disliked, and in some cases hated, in both poker and sports circles, which is pretty amazing because it's, it's 
pretty tough to get that many people to think badly of you and hate you and root against you, but this has been happening. And I think this is partially by design. I think this is the way he gets attention. Some people feed off of negative attention. Some people thrive from negative attention. Some people feel the only way they can get attention is by doing things to have themselves perceived negatively so people talk about them. There are some people out there that would rather be talked about negatively than not talked about at all. Most of these people would prefer the attention was positive, but if they don't have a way to easily get positive attention, then they would rather have negative attention than no attention. And I think that's the case with Sean Perry. I think that's what's going on with him. And I don't think he's reasoning this out or thinking this in his head, okay, I'm going to try to get negative attention. I think he just does it because he wants attention and this is the way he can get it. Because it's a lot easier to get negative attention than positive attention. There's a lot of things you can do that will make yourself stand out in a negative way and people will pay attention to you, but it's not going to be good attention. As far as getting positive attention, that's much tougher. Sometimes you can do very good things or very impressive things that people just won't take notice no matter what you do. Sean Perry has infuriated a lot of people because of his bragging and because a lot of the claims he's making seem to be untrue or highly unlikely. And that tends to get people angry because they don't like when someone is giving themselves accolades over something that they believe that person is not accomplishing, especially if they're in the same industry as that person. So it can be frustrating when you're struggling to win at poker or you're barely getting by, or you're grinding many hours a day and just barely scratching by to be a profitable player. And you have a guy who's bragging that he's making millions in poker when you think he's probably not. Or when you're betting sports a lot and you're struggling just to break even and you have a guy who seems like a moron who claims he's winning millions a day in sports, and somehow they're giving him action at the casinos despite him just clobbering these books day in, day out. And you just go, that can't be true. But he brags about it and he postures as if it is true. And he wants respect for this being true. And you think, well, that's not fair. That's not fair that he would be getting this respect when I don't believe he's really doing it. And you think to yourself, I've been sports betting for so long, no one gives me any respect. Even people who are winning in sports, they're getting minimal respect. And this guy is trying to get all the respect as the best in the world when he might not even be winning and when his story doesn't add up. So this gets people very angry. It gets them a lot angrier than if he just had an unpleasant social media demeanor or said offensive things. It's all the bragging about something that people in that same industry are pretty sure is not true. So people just naturally get mad. They naturally want to see him fail. They naturally want to see him fall on his face. They naturally want to see him struggle. They want to see him brought down a peg. They want him to cry uncle and admit that he's not as good as he's been claiming. He's not as unstoppable as he's been bragging about. That he can finally admit he's human like they are and that he's not the greatest of all time. And becoming the greatest of all time takes a tremendous amount of work and talent that he probably doesn't have. People are waiting for that moment to occur, or even if he never admits these things to where he kind of just disappears and it's pretty much implied that he failed. That's what everyone wants to see. That's what people have been waiting for. 
Now, this was a little bit complicated by some success that he has had. First of all, he did make it down to the final 10 people out of over 9,000 entrants in the Circa Survivor Contest. This is a contest that I was part of and didn't make it anywhere near that far. So that's very impressive to make it down to the final 10. You can lock into it, but still he got there. I didn't really take a look at what he picked and whether he did it skillfully or not, but he did get down to the final 10 out of 9,000, whatever. So either he was incredibly lucky or he was at least somewhat skillful to get there. And that was really how he got publicity in recent times, in uh, 2024. Prior to that, people discussed him on Twitter sometimes, and there was one controversy he was part of where he was alleged, along with his friend Sam Several, to have scammed Daniel Coleman out of over a million dollars in a daily fantasy sports bet they had. And that was never really completely fleshed out. So there was that controversy. There was some controversy that he owed some people some money and that Jason Mercier came out and wrote something positive that he's been paying people back and that Mercier took heat for it. And he had a very bad reputation in poker. People in poker said that, number one, he was just always a douchebag at the table and people just hated having him there, but that some liked having him there because he was a fish. That's what some people were claiming. There were all these stories that he acted unethically, and there was that whole Daniel Coleman thing, which was never really fleshed out. There was a matter of him owing money to people that Jason Mercier talked about, but Mercier was praising him for paying people back, but then some people were suspecting that Mercier had to say that to get paid back himself. There are a lot of negative stories about him before any of this sports betting or circus survivor stuff that happened in 2024. So he was somewhat known, but it was always a mystery to me how he got his money in the first place. Where did he start off with a bankroll? The guy's in his 20s. I think he's 27 or something. Like, where did he get all this money in the first place? If he is a fish like they're claiming, did he run it up in poker? Because it just seemed to me like he just appeared at high stakes. I hadn't heard that he ran this up through low stakes and middle stakes and built himself up to where he could play in the higher games. And if he did this, then why are so many people saying that he's a fish if he was able to work his way up there and stay there for a while? And for sure, he is playing in these high stakes games. He is playing high stakes tournaments. He's also won or final tabled some nosebleed tournaments. So I can't believe that he's a fish. I think some people are just exaggerating here because they don't like him. I do think that he overestimates his poker skill. And I do think that maybe compared to these very tough fields, that he's an underdog, both at the cash games and in these tournaments. It's easy to come off as a fish if everybody else at the table is great. Because if they're all great and you're good, then you're the fish. If you're good and everybody at the table sucks or they're mediocre, then you're the shark. So it's very interesting in poker how that works. It's kind of like athletics. Like, I remember as a kid, I was an average athlete overall. I had some sports I was better than others, but I was really just right, right around the middle in athletic ability. And if I happened to end up with a bunch of kids who were very athletic, I looked like I had two left feet. I looked like I had two left hands. Like, I, I just looked terrible compared to them. But once in a while, I would end up in a situation 
playing with a bunch of kids who were not athletic at all. And I mean, I was like a top pro in the sport. It was amazing how good I looked when all the other kids sucked because I was average and they were below average and I blew them all away. But when I played against a bunch of kids who were above average, I looked awful. So it's like that in poker too. It's funny how just the best person at the table can dominate and just look so skilled just because the competition is worse than them. And that same person can look like a complete fish against better competition. So that might be the case with Sean Perry. But he has had some decent results. I don't know if he's up or down because he's playing very high stakes events. And it's very easy to cash for many millions and still be down because these buy-ins add up so quickly. So I wouldn't believe that he's an actual fish in poker. He has $6.8 million in cashes. The best cash he's ever gotten is uh, 640k, so he has never cashed seven figures. If you take a look at his Hended Mob, you'll see that he enters events that are typically five figures, ranging from 10,000 to 50,000, but also sometimes enters $100,000 events. Such as in November 21, he entered a 100k event and cashed. In January 22, 100k again and cashed. So, there has to be a number of times he entered and did not cash. And of course, that's not listed on Hinden Mob. And as recently as July 30th, 2023, he entered a $53,000 buy-in event in London and cashed 17th. So he definitely has money to enter these things. Do I believe he's up or down? I think he's probably down. The reason I say that is because you know, you're entering 100K events, 50K events over and over. I mean, that goes real fast. So 6.8 million in caches is very good if you're not entering nosebleed events all the time. But if you are, you're probably down. But I don't know. But I don't think he's a fish necessarily. He may be a fish compared to those fields. Interestingly, if you scroll back, seven years ago, March 20th, 2017, he was entering a $150 event. And 10 days later, he did enter a $2,200 event, maybe with the previous winnings he got, because he got a cash in between there. And then he won 74 k in that one. But still, you, know, you go to April 2017, he's entering a $130 event in Hollywood, Florida. And if you scroll up, you really don't see him enter anything that's really big until 2021. And that was a 25K Aria High Roller. Prior to that, he was entering at highest 10K, but he was entering things below that. And as I said, in 2017, he was entering three-figure events. It's a kind of a mystery with him where the money came from. And as I said, I know for a fact that he was in high-stakes cash games, like very high-stakes cash games. So there is raw money being used to enter here. The guy's not like Christopher Mitchell, who just pretends to be a millionaire or a multimillionaire when he's constantly broke. Sean Perry's not broke. And as you'll hear in this segment, Sean Perry definitely has money that he's using to do what he's been doing recently. Of course, the question is, where is this money coming from? And if it's his, is he profitable or is he just in a shame spiral down to zero? So we're going to try to cover all of this. And I want to remind you again, I'm just guessing at all this stuff. 
because I have not researched him in any way where I have any kind of hard facts on his life or his money or anything like that. I'm just deducing things and I'm going by things that I've been told and things I've heard, but maybe I'm wrong. So don't take any of this as verified 100% facts. Don't take them as facts at all. Take what I'm going to say here as opinions, and then you can form your own opinion. You can go take a look at his Twitter and go take a look at his history. You can form your own opinion about Sean Perry. And by the way, some of the opinions I'm going to express are not the popular opinion. And I'll tell you the difference between my opinions and the popular opinions during this segment. I'm someone who likes to be fair to everybody, whether they're a jerk, whether they're a douchebag, whether they're a braggart, and perhaps a braggart about things that they really don't deserve to brag about. It's very easy to just knee-jerk bash that person and come up with the worst possible interpretation about them and their life. But I don't like doing that. I want to come up with the truth. And if the truth is positive, then I'll be honest and I'll admit it. If it's negative, I will too. And sometimes it's mixed. Sometimes it's mixed, but shaded more negative. But I don't just like to automatically assume the worst about anybody. I'd like to really figure out what the story is, at least as far as I can do it without putting a tremendous amount of effort into it. Because I don't care about Sean Perry enough to spend a lot of my life investigating the guy. I have no reason to. I won't. But he's an interesting story. So I have thought about him, and I have tried to put something together, try to put a narrative together of what's going on with this guy. I know a lot of you are interested because I've had a lot of requests to cover him again, especially given how prominent he's been and especially given his very high-profile Super Bowl bit, which we will talk about. So as I said, Sean Perry first really came into prominence when he got down to the final 10 in the Circus Survivor. I won't go into that with a lot of detail because we already did that on a recent show. But just to remind you, in December of 2023... He was down to the final 10 of the almost 9,300 entries, and each entry was $1,000, and there was no rake in this contest. So the prize pool, which was winner-take-all, was $9.3 million. And what people have done in previous years is chop it, or at least partially chop it, when they get down to relatively few contestants. So this way, everybody's guaranteed something, and they don't have to lose a lot of equity on one team screwing them. So he refused to chop with these other nine people. The proposed chop was 400K guaranteed each to the 10 entrants. So they would take 4 million out of the pool, give 400K to each person, and then the remaining 5.3 million would be the prize. And it would only be split up if everybody got to the end without losing, or whoever did would split it at that point. Otherwise, if it has one person left, then they would uh, get the whole remaining 5.3 million. That's what was proposed. Apparently, all nine people besides Sean agreed to this, but Sean said no. And this really made a lot of headlines, and Sean really exploited this for attention. He was bragging that he's the greatest sports better in the world, that his skill is so much above these other nine people that it wouldn't be worth it for him to chop it. And also, he has so much money, he doesn't need the 400k. So he doesn't care. He gambles so much every day. He gambles millions per day. So why should he chop for 400K? That's not what the greatest of all time sports better would ever do, especially one who is so well-funded such as him. So he said no. 
and it was covered all, all over social media. It was covered in poker media. It was covered in sports-related articles, and it was even covered in the Las Vegas Review-Journal. So people really started to take notice of Sean Perry. Did he end up showing everybody because he made it all the way to the end and didn't chop? No. He ended up losing that next week. (laughs) See, he had a pick on the Denver Broncos who got upset that week. And that was that. Apparently, five other people had the Broncos as well. The crappy New England Patriots beat them, even though the game was in Denver. So that brought it down to four people, and those four did make it to the very end of the contest and split it. Now, some people theorized that Sean didn't walk away with zero. It was theorized that Sean might have bet back against the Broncos with a normal bet, which is known as hedging. Of course, he would never admit that. He wants to posture like the money doesn't matter to him. But it's very possible that he bet it back on the Broncos, and someone even pointed out that they didn't analyze his team, but it's possible that what he had left to pick as far as the teams he could pick is in Survivor, you could only pick one team each for the contest. So once you use up a team you pick, you can't pick them again for the rest of the season. So it's possible that he had better teams to pick from the rest of the way than other people did, and he really did have an edge. So if that was the case, it wouldn't be worth it for him to do an even chop like that. It would be worth it for him to refuse the chop and then just on his own hedge his own bets. So some people were theorizing that's what he did, and that instead of just giving that as the reason, he just postured that he's better than everybody and he doesn't need to, that he did this all for attention. And you know what? That's a pretty good theory. It's also possible that regardless of how much better his situation was than the other people in that contest, that he just was going to do that anyway, that he is a high-stakes player, and that what he was just going to do is quietly hedge behind the scenes and then posture that he's refusing to chop because he's the greatest of all time. So that was how people really started to take notice of him. And then he became even more prominent on social media when he started his own tout service. Now, listen to this prediction from Poker Fraud Alert forum member Nikki Pipes, who was called into the show once, you might remember. But Nikki Pipes said this on December 26th, 2023. Nikki Pipes said, Agree with the comment that he's likely to launch some kind of tout-type service or possibly even just a general gambling or personal brand coaching service in the coming months. Well, that's correct. (laughs) Very good, Nicky Pipes. I guess someone else said it, too, because he said he agrees. But he said it's going to happen in the coming months. It's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. He started a tout service. A tout service is where you make sports picks and... People pay you for those picks. Touts have existed for many decades. Touts are almost always scams. Yeah, they provide you with real picks, but usually the tout picks are nothing special. Often they're just selected at random. Or losing sports bettors are selling touts and pretending like they're winning sports bettors. So a lot of the touts are frauds. Why? Because... If these people could really win that much money with their picks, they would just do it themselves. They wouldn't have to sell picks. Now, if you ask them, why are you selling picks instead of making them yourselves? You get one of two answers from these touts. Answer number one is, 
I just want to share my success with the people, which if that's the case, why don't you give them out for free? And then answer number two, well, I can't get action down anymore. Everybody knows me, so the sports books won't let me bet, but they'll let you bet. Number two can be somewhat true, but there's other ways to get action down. You can send runners to place bets for you and things like that. If you're really winning money that effortlessly with your picks, it's worth it to get runners or other people to place your bets for you. And also, there's a lot of places you can sign up to bet that you can even do online. So there's a lot more options to bet things now than there used to be. Anyway, there have been so many fraudulent touts over the years, and there's various tricks they have employed, too, in order to keep people on the hook and keep paying. For example, there are some online touts that have a few different identities. And what they will do is they will pick opposite of each other. So this way, one side of them is going to win every week. And if that side happens to get hot just from dumb luck, then those people will think that picker is a genius and keep subscribing. And as far as the other side that loses, well, people will quit with that guy, but then you can just kill that personality and you can make another one. So there's that going on. There's others who don't make multiple personalities on the internet to make these picks, but they'll just send different picks to different people, knowing that for some it'll win, for some it'll lose, and this will create the false impression of hot streaks for certain customers who will stay on the hook. So there's a lot of different tricks they use. There's also what's known as the units trick. Now, Sean Perry doesn't do this, by the way. In fact, I don't think he does any of these things, but I'm just describing what other touts have done. The units trick is when a sports bidder gets off to a bad start. Let's say he's 3-10 and ten to start off with. Well, that's a pretty hard hole to get out of because you'd have to win seven in a row just to get even at that point. And even in sports betting means you're down because there's the house juice on each bet. So when you get off to a bad start, one way to get out of that hole is by betting bigger on the future game. So that's where they use units. So they'll say, okay, well, this week, the pick is so good, it's a 10-unit pick. So it's 10 times what the other ones are worth. So this way, if they start off 3 and 10, the next pick they can make is 10 units. And if it wins, well, what do you know? All of a sudden, now they're 13 and 10, which looks a lot nicer. What's the problem with units is they're not really providing you with an accurate record of how good their picks are. They're just giving a fictitious number of units that you're supposed to be betting on them. And if that loses, let's say the 10-unit pick loses and now they're 3-20, and 20, well, then the next pick can be 20 units, and, and so on and so forth. It doesn't matter because they're not really betting the units. They can make it a million units. You know, It doesn't matter. A unit is nothing. So the unit is a way that they can just keep increasing it to falsely prop up their record whereas nobody can really bet that way, or nobody should bet that way. It's too much variance. And if their customers lose, it's no skin off their ass. So the only way to honestly provide sports picks is just to provide them and not assign units to them. The only way units really are fair is if you constantly make it the same number of units bet every time, and it's just for record keeping, because I'll do that. So for example, if I bet on a baseball game that... The team is an underdog. They're a plus 150 underdog, meaning I get pa- I win 1.5 times the bet if it wins and only lose one times the bet if it loses. Then you can do units. You can say, okay, I'm betting one unit on this. And if it wins, I go up 1.5 units. If I lose, I go down one. 
That's totally fair as long as every single one of my bets is one unit. So every time I lose one unit and whatever I win is the units it would pay based upon whether it's a favorite or underdog. That's fair. And in fact, you have to do that in order to keep an accurate record because with underdogs, of course, they're going to win a lot less often than favorites, but underdogs don't even have to win 50% of the time for you to have a winning record. So something that's going to be plus 150, 1.5 to 1, you could win a good deal less than 50% of the time and still be positive expectation or at least winning in that venture of picking those. So that's the only place where units are fair. But that's another trick, though, where they use units to basically prop up a false record. A lot of different scammy touts out there, is my point. Another thing touts will do is just outright lie about their records. Forget the units thing. They just will have their records behind a paywall, knowing that prospective customers can't see behind that paywall. They can claim anything. They can claim they're absolutely destroying it when they're really losing. Their customers will know the truth, but the new customers won't. The existing customers are going to leave anyway if this person keeps losing. And if they're winning and just exaggerating how much they've been winning, these people will tend to stay because they're still happy, even if the marketing's dishonest. So the existing customers will stay or leave based upon how they're really doing. The prospective customers will only join if they think that person's really kicking ass. So a lot of them will just outright make up a phony record. So with Sean Perry, that's what people were thinking he might be doing. People were thinking that he's just propping up a fake record and also claiming to be winning a fortune actually betting the sports. Because unlike many touts who don't make claims that they're doing the betting themselves, he claims he is doing the betting himself and he's winning a fortune doing it. So he's not one of these guys saying, well, I can't bet this for this or this reason, but I'm selling them to you so you can bet them because they're winning picks. He's saying, oh, no, no, I'm betting them. I'm making a ton of money, but I'm still selling them to you to give you a chance to make that same money. I don't want to give any kind of promotion to Sean Perry. So I'm going to tell you right now, I do not endorse these picks. I think it would be a mistake to buy any of these picks. And if you listen to this segment, you'll understand why. But I will tell you, the webpage you can take a look at where the picks can be bought just so you can see how much they are and the way it's laid out and everything. It's whop.com, like WAP, whop.com slash Sean Perry wins. And Sean is spelled S-E-A-N. So it's whop.com slash Sean Perry wins. And he sells you a lock of the day for $199, a lock of the day for three days for $379, Seven days of the lock for $599. You can subscribe to daily picks, which aren't locks, but they're other picks he gives you for $199 a week. Daily picks monthly for $499 a month, or sorry, $399 a month. And I'm not going to read everything here, but uh, it goes all the way up to exclusive yearly for $10,000 a year. And then... You could join his free telegram without paying anything, apparently. And I guess occasionally he'll post free picks there. He supposedly has 137 reviews, but this is on this same WHOP site. And 4.82 stars out of 5 
with 91% giving him five stars, 2% giving him four stars, 1% giving him three stars, 0% giving him two stars, and 7% giving him one star. Now, I will say the most recent reviews are very, very negative. Even though only 7% are one star, the most recent ones seem to be all one star. And there's a reason for that, but listen to this most recent one from two days ago. Incredibly inconsistent and more focused on marketing and influencing public perception, i.e. constantly posting on socials how much money he has, rather than providing the basics to his paid community. For example, he doesn't even post how many units he places on his tips released daily. Well, okay, that's, that's a bad criticism right there because he shouldn't be posting units. Should at least be one on every pick. So this subscribers are expected to back him and just hope for the best. Personally, I've tried to stick to his lock of the day for the past 29 days, consistently outlaying one unit each. Okay, that's the right thing to do. And I've lost a lot of money. <laughs> Oops. While his stats in this period show 17 and 12 for the lock, some of his tips are only $1.30 or $1.50, so you need to win two from every three bets to stay afloat. Now, let me stop and explain there. He doesn't mean the price you have to pay for them. He's saying that some of the picks are minus 130 or minus 150, meaning you'd have to bet $150 to win 100 so basically, since these are not even money bets, that just having a positive record doesn't make you a winner, even if the record is 17 and 12. For the record, his other tips, daily picks and parlays, are much worse over the same period. Would not recommend subscribing to this inconsistent and non-transparent service. Better off following Capper's Intel on Twitter for the many alternatives that also provide their better tips for free. By the way, we'll get to Capper's Intel a little bit later in the segment. Another person. Wins some, loses a lot. Games he loses, he ain't even close. Over-unders are horrendous. Flipping a coin would pick better than Sean, honestly. Guy doesn't even understand unit count. When I ask him, he says, whatever you're comfortable with. Like, huh? You got to tell us units. See, these people are so used to buying picks from touts, they don't understand that he's actually right not to provide units. Except just for record keeping. Except just one unit each bet and then figure out how many units you're up or down. That's needed, but you don't put multiple units on each game, or you don't get an accurate picture on how much uh, this handicapper is really doing for you. His locks ain't no locks, to say the least. Does no research. Talks about beating lines when 40% of the time go against us. His 1.1 million Super Bowl pick I went against. Save your money. Yeah, the Super Bowl pick, spoiler alert, uh, was a big failure. Another review. Pure gambling picks, not real-based research info picks, showing off and bragging about beating closing lines, but you don't win. Not worth it, even if it was all free. Okay, let me stop again here and explain about the closing lines. There's become a big obsession in the sports betting world recently with what's called closing line value, or CLV. The theory is that since the lines on these games, and I'm talking usually about spreads, but also can be money lines. Right? Let's say there's a team which is minus three, which means they have to win by more than three for you to win the bet. If they win by three, then you tie the bet. And if they win by one or two, you actually lose the bet. And if they lose the game, you lose the bet too. So the spread will move around based upon various factors. So let's say you bet a game at minus three, but by the time the game starts, it's minus five. Well, you got a better bet than those who bet later, because now you can tie if it finishes with a victory by three, and you win if it's by four or five, whereas the person who bet minus five will lose 
if that team wins by three or four and will only tie at five. So that person who bet at minus three is much better off than the one who bet at minus five. And that's just timing. So closing line value is about that, where if you bet with a better line than what the final line is before the game begins, it's considered you have a good bet. That's what the theory is. And a lot of sports handicappers focus on that, and they're looking at not their wins and losses, but how often that they are beating the closing line. But there is a problem with the closing line value theory. And I can tell you this from experience. The problem is that things will change as you get closer to game time. Number one, there can be injuries. There can be players that are going to be sat out or not playing as much compared to what was expected before. And you have a lot less information based upon what the other good handicappers are doing. Because in today's day and age where there's a lot of information on the internet that you can look up involving games and involving the way respected handicappers are betting these games or not betting these games, you can roll that into your own opinion of where the game's going to go. So if you have a feeling that a game's going to go a certain way, but then you notice just about every respected handicapper you're following is going the opposite way, then you may not want to pick on that game at all. Or you may want to switch sides and go with them. Also, without even following specific handicappers, you can also see, by the way, the line is moving. And when the line is going worse and worse for you, meaning that it's something where you'd have to cover more points or you're not getting as good of a payout, on one hand, that can look bad. You know, if something starts out as minus three and ends up minus five or minus six, one way to look at it is, okay, if I bet it now when it's minus five or minus six, I'm already giving up a few points compared to what I bet it before, so it's too late. I don't want to bet this anymore. And that's okay to think, but another way to look at it is, why did it move this much? It moved that much because the sportsbook felt they had to move that because the sportsbook either felt that that side is going to win and they're trying to discourage bets on it, or there's so much sharp money, or maybe just so much general money, coming in on that side that they're trying to even it out the other way. Sometimes it is just a matter of the book trying to guarantee themselves a win with juice by putting the same amount of money on each side or trying to make that happen. But if you'll take a look, these lines tend to be very close among all the books. You don't see that much variance between books anymore. So it usually isn't that much being based upon books trying to keep an even money, uh, even amount of money on each side. So a lot of times when the line moves like that, it is because the book itself has a lean that the game is going to go that way. So that can sometimes indicate that this is a good bet, even if you are losing a few points. So there's a lot of things to consider. And of course, at some point when it's moved too much, then you are not going to get value anymore, even if it would be a good bet a few points ago. And at that point, you just stay away. But the problem with closing line value is that it makes you have to bet it early. And when you bet it early, you don't get to see these things. Not only don't you get to see anything that might change regarding who's playing or who's injured, but you also don't get to react to a lot of the bets coming in later and who's making them and how much is being made and how the books are reacting. And these are important factors too, because there's so much of that information out there. And if you're not paying attention to that information, by the way, you're probably not a winning sports better.
because I pay a lot of attention to it. That's not all I use. I use a lot of different data points to make the picks I'm making. But I don't ignore that stuff. That's one of the things I do take into consideration. So closing line value, the problem with it is requires that you're betting too early and you're missing out on that important information. So that's what that person's referring to is that he brags too much. Sean Perry brags too much about the closing line value, but then he just outright loses. So uh, they're saying that doesn't really matter that much if he just keeps losing. Another person. I've seen one star after one star. So far, the first five reviews are on one star. I paid 600, only won two out of seven called locks, or two under seven so-called locks. Dude may have had a run in the past, but to be honest, not worth it. There's way better cappers out there. Another one. Don't bother. He has 15 different plans. Everyone gets a different game, so he posts his wins. His daily program is trash. I can lose money without his help. I don't know if that's true. I've never heard that he is posting different picks. And there was a guy who was messaging me. I don't know if he's a listener to this show or just someone who follows me on Twitter, but whatever it is. Some guy started messaging me that he subscribes to Sean Perry's picks. And then he was giving a few of them to me. At first, he wanted me to buy a piece of it. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> I'm not doing that. But you know, if you want to provide him to me, or at least occasionally provide him, just to, so I can see if he's really winning what he claims he's winning, like if he's going to claim the win was the same pick he made, then you know, I'd like to see it. I'm not even going to bet them. So the guy gave me a few. And to be fair, whatever the guy gave me, Sean did later claim that was his pick. So I don't think he's changing his picks around or sending certain picks to some to the others. I don't, I don't think he's doing that. But this person's still unhappy. Now, even this four-star review wasn't great. It said, player props don't really be hitting like that. In six days, I only hit one. I'd like to telegram a lot. I just don't like that they don't be hitting like that. It's kind of a weird review. A lot of five-star reviews, which who knows if they're real. The goat of sports betting, stop losing and join the winning side today. That sounds like an advertisement. But then there's another one star. His service is not good at all. He will make you poor, but make himself rich by using this platform. Don't fall for it. So there definitely are a lot of one stars, but it still only makes up 7%. They're mostly recent. And most of these reviews, by the way, the vast, vast majority are within a short period of time, which makes me think they're fake. So like within like a two week period, he got like a hundred something reviews, and then like we've had only twenty in the last three weeks, which doesn't make any sense. So I think he probably bought reviews. So I wouldn't trust that four point eighty two stars. I got some information. I'm forgetting whether I mentioned it on the last show or not, but I got some information that what Sean was really doing was taking picks that were made by his friend Sam Soverell and selling these and that he and Sam and maybe some other people own this tout service together and Sean's basically the face of it. So Sam doesn't want to put himself out there like that. Sam does not want to be a clown on Twitter. Sam is not a brash person. So he kind of sits in the background, I was told, and he makes sharp picks. He actually puts research into it and he has a group that helps him making data-driven picks. So they come up with picks that are based upon sound theory and then they give it to Sean to act like he's just this savant, this sports betting genius who comes off like a douchebag and an idiot and that you're basically betting with this obnoxious sports betting savant who just somehow keeps putting out winners. That was the plan here. 
is that they're going to provide good picks to this idiot and that the idiot's going to sell them because he can be brash and very loud on social media and brag all the time and posture like he's a super rich guy. And because he also enters these big poker events, it is believable that he is a super rich guy. So people will believe it and think he's just some killer sports better who just got an attitude and pay money for this tout service. Whereas if Sam Sufferall is doing it, it'll be kind of boring. People won't take notice of it. He won't come off any different than any other tout. So it made sense to me. That was, that was a theory that was given to me by somebody else. And I thought that actually had some validity. Well, I shouldn't say it was given to me. It was given to me that Sam Several is the one behind the picks, or at least the locks. That's the difference between the locks and the daily picks. The locks were supposedly Sam's. The daily picks were supposedly Sean's. And then I was the one who threw in the part about that Sean is doing it because he's the one willing to put himself out there in a brash and douchey fashion to get attention where Sam isn't. That, that part's my theory. The other part of it was somebody else's theory that they presented to me, and I thought it made sense. Is that the case? I don't know. I don't know exactly where he's getting these picks, but it's very possible it's something like that. The guy who was messaging me was telling me that he was doing very well with these locks. This person was saying that he was killing it with the locks, but the daily picks were a little bit below 500. So those were not doing well. Those were on the losing side. But the locks were doing very well. So you might think, okay, well, then it makes sense. Forget the daily picks. Subscribe to the lock of the day. And even if they're not from Sean himself, who cares if he's the face of it? If these are good picks that are being done by Sam Several and his research group, then who cares? You're getting winning picks. Who cares who's selling it? Well, there's a problem. These are very expensive. <laughs> if these were five bucks a day, I'd say, sure. If this were the case, I can't even tell you if that's the case. It's just a theory. The problem is the lock of the day for one day is 200 bucks. The lock of the day for three days is still almost 400 for the three days combined. The lock of the day for a week is 600 combined. It's still almost 100 a day. Even for a month, it's 1600. So that's a little more than 50 a day. You have to bet pretty big for this to be worth it. And I'll tell you why. These picks do not have a ton of value, even if they're sharp picks, because I'm going to break some news to you regarding the most common type of picks that are provided by touts. And those are the ones that are most bet on. And those are sides, totals, and money lines. That's where you're just betting on the result of a game. So you're betting team A is going to win by seven or more. So team A minus seven over team B or the total. The total between the Lakers and the Utah Jazz tonight is going to be over or under 227 points. And you bet on that. Or a straight money line. So the Los Angeles Dodgers are minus 230 against the Colorado Rockies, which means you'd have to bet $230 on the Dodgers to win 100. So those are the most common type of bets out there on sportsbooks by a wide margin. Most of the other bets are either props or they are variations of bets. They're alternative bets. Like in baseball, you can do a first five innings result bet. Or you can bet on props of you know, what a certain player is going to do. Or you can bet on the specific number of runs that a team is going to have in a baseball game. Or things like that. So you can have alternative bets too. 
But number one, those aren't as easy to find action on where you can embed them. Number two, the juice tends to be higher. Number three, the limits on these tend to be lower. So these touts usually stay away from that stuff. And the touts tend to provide you just straight bets on either spreads, totals, or money lines, as I just described. The problem with spreads, totals, and money lines is they're very hard to beat. The lines tend to be pretty sharply set. So you not only have to beat whoever's setting the lines, who is an expert at what they're doing, but you also have to beat the house juice because you're not betting these juice free. You're betting these with the house taking a percentage of the bet, usually like uh, 10%. So you have to beat that juice too. So the whole thing becomes very difficult to beat. Now, the advantage you have is that you're not making a pick on every single game out there. You get to look at all the games that are being offered, and then you pick the one that you think the line is not set properly, where you believe the team you're betting on has a good chance to beat it. So you get to be selective of which one you bet. So that's your advantage. But for almost everybody, that's not enough to negate the rest of this. And that's why almost all sports bettors lose long-term and even medium-term. And even the ones that win are never crushing it. The ones that win are only winning by a small percentage. You can have people that will have a temporary hot run where they'll win by a big percentage. In fact, I know one. I know a guy who, not this past NFL season, but in the 22-23 NFL season had a tremendous year, just a tremendous year. This person went 54-32-2, the two being ties, 54-32-2, betting one unit each game with a plus 25.89 unit win. That's a tremendous record. Who is that person? That was Todd Dandruff Wotelis who did that. How did I do that? Mostly luck. (laughs) I knew I would never do that again. That was a tremendous record, but there's no way I could duplicate that. That was just super lucky. I ran super well. How did I do this season? Slightly above average. Slightly above even. Not average. I I did way better than average. Most people lose, but I, I did slightly above even. I won a few units. I think I finished like two and a half units and nowhere near that record. So I had a kind of okay-ish 23-24 in the NFL. 22-23, I just crushed it. So you can have these brief streaks where you really kick ass. Sometimes it's luck, sometimes it's skill, sometimes it's a combination of luck and skill. Usually that's what it is. But then you can also have these brutal runs where you're just getting stomped on. And when you add it all up in the medium term, in the long term, you will see that even if you're winning sports better, you're not going to be up by that much. I actually had this discussion at a Super Bowl party I was at with somebody there who's asking me, can you beat sports with spread totals and money line bets? And I said, well, it depends on which sport, but in certain sports, I believe I can kind of break even or or win a little bit. And I base this upon, you know, some recent years of doing it. But I don't believe I could win big or even moderate money doing it without risking very big money 
to do it. So it's not something that's going to reliably generate a lot of money. I think I'm much better than the average sports handicapper. And you, you can take a look. Like on Vegas Casino Talk, I post my picks and my record, and, and, and I separate them into each sport, so it's very easy to follow. I post them on Poker Fraudler, too, but it's like a big, long wagering thread where it's very hard to follow records. But on Vegas Casino Talk in the sports betting section, I actually separate this out so it's very easy to see my record and everything. So you'll see. You know, I'm doing okay. I'm not losing. I did have to give up on the college sports. I just can't seem to beat those. But on the pros, you can take a look. I look at the season. You can look at last NFL season, how I crushed it. And, you know, I, I can tread water. I can do a little better than treading water. But I, I can't do much better than that long term. And that's the truth for just about everybody. In fact, you're not going to see anyone that is just consistently crushing it. Like that record I had in the NFL in 22-23, this 54-32, including with some big underdogs that won as well. You're not going to see that. No one's going to win at that rate consistently. And I knew when that season was over, I'm not going to come back and the next season be like that. So any tout who's selling you this magic formula that you're just going to crush it and just win, 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 win effortlessly, that's not going to happen. Not with spreads, totals, and money lines. It's just too hard. So with that in mind, you would never want to pay very much money for advice on these sports picks or you're giving yourself extra juice. Now, it's one thing if you're paying 100 bucks a month for some sort of service that you trust, and then they're giving you picks that are pretty good. If you bet enough, you can overcome that. But not what Sean Perry's charging here. You'd have to bet a lot of money to overcome that additional juice. So even if these were winning picks, they're too expensive. But are these even winning picks? Or was the winning just some dumb luck? Because remember, I told you he was apparently winning a lot of the locks of the day in January. Was that just dumb luck? Well, I tried to analyze that. I looked at some of the picks that he was making, either once he posted afterwards that he was bragging he won, even a few he posted afterwards and admitted he lost, and the ones that that guy was giving me, which always seemed to match what he would post later. So I believe the guy was telling me the truth. And what I did notice of these picks, of these locks of the day, was that they did seem to be typically on the sharp side, where he would bet similarly to what a lot of the sharps were betting. So at least I thought, okay, he's not betting like a moron here. Because Christopher Mitchell, I'll give him as an example compared to Sean Perry with his sports betting. Because Christopher Mitchell, gambling scammer Christopher Mitchell, he sells sports picks. Not the same way Perry does. He just sells access to his, quote, inner circle, where sports picks are part of it. But Christopher Mitchell, he bets like a complete moron. He bets like what would be known as a ploppy an amateur better, a recreational better, where he likes over totals, he likes big favorites. Basically, Christopher Mitchell looks and says, okay, well, I think this is the better team. I'm going to bet on them. Doesn't matter that there's a spread that covers for that. He just thinks, well, this is the better team. I'm betting on them. Or he'll bet on overs because it's much more fun to root for an over than it is for an under. Because who wants to root for teams not to score points when you're watching the game? So he vets very much like a ploppy. He doesn't do any real analysis. He just picks these out of his ass and tends to be on the public side, tends to just be 
picking the games that, as I said, for the teams that are the better team or picking over totals, things that are very typical of recreational players. Those are the type of picks that Christopher Mitchell sells. Sean Perry, I didn't see that. Sean Perry was making picks that were going on the sharp side, even the ones like the overs and the favorites. Sometimes those also are sharp picks, even though the public makes them as well. And I did see that a lot of times he was on the sharp side with these locks. So that also bolstered the theory that Sam Several was actually providing the picks to him, and if not Sam, someone similar to Sam. And that maybe the daily picks were just Sean pulling them out of his ass. I haven't really seen the daily picks, so I don't know, but people were telling me they've never really been successful. But things started to unravel for Sean recently, and they're still unraveling as I speak. One of the failures of Sean was his bet on the Super Bowl. So Sean posted a ticket from Circa, and he blocked out the team he was betting on so that he wasn't providing a free pick to everybody because he blocked out the team. But he showed a legitimate-looking ticket from Circa that he bet on one of the two Super Bowl teams on the spread and that he paid $1.1 million for the ticket at minus 110, which is the standard juice for a spread bet, and that if he were to win that one bet, he would win. One million dollars. Exactly one million dollars. So the ticket after the game would either be worth 2.1 million, which is his original 1.1 million, and his million he would have won, or the ticket would be worth zero point zero the only way that could not be true either of them is if the game were to tie according to the spread but if the spread has a half number to it then it can't be like one and a half there's no way a score can actually be one and a half points apart from the winner or loser so there you're gonna have a, always a winner or a loser so eventually it was revealed after the game started that he bet on the san francisco 49ers minus one and a half as you guys all saw, it was a very close game. It ended up going to overtime, and Kansas City ended up winning with a touchdown in OT. The final score was 25-22. So not only did the spread lose for the 49ers, all bets on the 49ers lost there because they were this very small favorite. And that meant that Sean Perry lost. And boy, were people cheering about this. A lot of people were rooting for the Chiefs just because they wanted to root against Sean Perry. Some people who were neutral on the game or even maybe a little bit on the side to want to see the 49ers win changed their minds when they saw that Sean Perry stood to win a million bucks if the Niners were to win and stood to lose 1.1 million bucks if the 49ers were to lose or win by one. So people were rooting for the Chiefs just to root against Sean Perry. I had someone tell me, I don't normally root for people on Twitter to lose, but this is the one exception. I was actually happy when the game was over knowing that Sean lost. That's what someone told me who has never had any direct dealings with Sean. This is not someone who got cheated by Sean or lost money to Sean or, or bought his picks and was unhappy. This person had no interaction with Sean in the past, and that's what they told me after the Super Bowl. But yeah, he lost. Now, is it possible this was a fake ticket? Is it possible this is just falsified? And he didn't really bet $1.1 million. No, because Jeffrey Benson, who was the manager of the Circus Sportsbook 
and very active on social media, verified that this is a real ticket. He said, yes, this is a bet that we actually booked. So yes, that was a real bet that Sean Perry placed for over a million bucks. And he lost it. He's claiming that was the biggest bet placed on the Super Bowl anywhere. I don't think I believe that, but that's what he's claiming. It is one of the bigger bets, for sure. But no matter, he lost. Now, let's discuss Sean Perry's limits. Because limits are a big part of sports betting. Let's say you're just a sports betting stud and you just blow away the expectations. You somehow can do what almost everybody else can't. You can just relentlessly crush the books with your picks on spreads, totals, and money lines. You just keep winning. You just always be on the you're just always on the right side of it. Let's say hypothetically you're psychic. Hypothetically, you can look into the future and see who's going to win. And let's even say that you're not a perfect psychic. Let's say you get a vision of the game's results about 50% of the time, and the other 50% you just got to go with your gut. So you don't have a perfect record, but you're doing very, very well because of your psychic abilities. By the way, I don't believe there's any psychic sports bettors out there, but let's say there was one. Let's say that was you. Does that mean you could just move to Vegas and become a billionaire betting on these games? Just betting unlimited money on them and just making money after money after money every single day on these games because you have such an amazing record because you're psychic? Could you? No. Could you become like Biff in Back to the Future 2 who got the sports almanac that Marty McFly dropped? and then was able to bet for the next 30 years on the correct games, was known as the luckiest gambler in the world, and ended up with his own big casino that happened to look just like the plaza downtown in Vegas. Could you become Biff? No. Because the reality is that you'll get cut off. Sports books are typically risk-averse. What they want is a reliable win on each game where they get half the money bet on one side, half the money bet on the other, and then the juice is where they make the money to where they're not really gambling. You are gambling with them, but they're not gambling with you. They just want the guaranteed win. And when there's a lopsided betting handle on one side or the other, then they are gambling then they will lose if the side with the more money comes through. And they can't force money to be on one side or the other because people will bet what they bet. And if they adjust the line too much, then people will start taking advantage of it the other way. In fact, they can do something called middling when you see a line move a lot and then you bet it back the other way and then you hope the actual total of the game lands in the middle and then you end up winning both bets. So they can't move the line too much or bringing on that happening. But they also can have lopsided bets depending on the action they're getting on both sides. So what they do is, number one, they hold down limits unless they need you to bet something to catch up with the other side. So if everybody's betting on side A, they need bets on side B, and you walk in and want to make a big bet on side B, they take it. 
But short of that, they don't want to give you a very high limit because then that starts making it lopsided again. They don't want your one bet to have to make them play catch up on the other side. So typically, books just don't want to take large bets. Now, sometimes they will take large bets on big events like the Super Bowl because they know there's so much money coming in on both sides that even these so-called large bets are going to be dwarfed by the amount of money bet total on that game. So they don't worry about it. But on most things, there is a limit, and especially if they start getting the idea that you can beat them, then they especially don't want your money. So once they think you're as sharp, they'll start cutting you off. Now, if you walk in there and bet $50 a day, you could be the sharpest of sharp guys. They're never going to notice you because it's just too small. But even if you're betting something that's not huge, but is enough for them to notice that just you just keep coming in and winning and winning and winning, they will cut you off. And there's a lot of sports books in Vegas that to get more than a thousand or two on a normal game can be tough. And then they'll have to review you. And sometimes you can get approval to bet more. And there are some houses that will take big bets, but there's a lot that won't. You'll be surprised, even big casinos in Vegas. And that's because the sports books operate on their own budget and it's separate from the rest of the casino. Now, this has changed a little bit because in Vegas, there's now a lot of independent operations that are basically through a partnership or through leased space are providing the sports betting in these casinos. Like William Hill is one of them. They're a huge sports betting operation, and they have a number of casino outlets there in Vegas. There's also large branded sports betting operations like BetMGM now that not only exist online in the states where that's legal, but also across all the MGM properties and even some properties that are not MGM. So they can take more action for that reason. You know, the more action they take, the more they can absorb big bets. But you start getting to huge bets and it starts getting very difficult for your action to be accepted. So when will they accept huge bets? Well, number one, as I said, on a very high-profile event, especially a very high-profile event where they need money on the other side. And number two, if they believe that person is a sports betting fish and that that person is going to lose and lose pretty quickly. If they think you have any kind of sports betting skill, they're not going to want to take large bets from you unless, again, it's a very high-profile game and they want a lot of money on the other side and that's the side you want. So this brings people to question Sean Perry. He's claiming to bet millions a day. He's claiming to win eight figures a month, something crazy like that. How is he doing it? How is he crushing these books? How are they not noticing that he is crushing them at this rate when he's betting far more than everybody else? How are they not noticing he's crushing and why are they still booking his bets? Even if on the outside, he's coming off as a moron. Even on the outside, he's coming off as someone who's not knowledgeable. If just somehow he seems to be crushing it, they're not stupid. They could know that he could be getting these picks from somebody else and he's the idiot front man who's the face of it. They're not going to want to take that action. Again, maybe on the Super Bowl, but they're not going to normally want to take this action on normal games. They're going to turn him down if they think there's any sharpness to these bets. So if he is really getting this type of 
action if he's getting this type of high limits that he can just fire on these normal games then he is not a winning sports better well circa is an interesting story he got the 1.1 million down on the niners but from what i heard the chiefs were getting most of the money i don't know if it's because of taylor swift or what but the chiefs seem to be getting most of the money I think it was actually a combination of uh, Pat Mahomes and uh, Taylor Swift. But I could see where they would want $1.1 million on the Chiefs there to maybe cover disproportionate action on the Chiefs. That they'd like to have this Niners bet that he's making for $1.1 million. But did he have high limits prior to that? Well, the answer is actually yes. But he doesn't have them anymore. So on February 13th, Sean Perry wrote, let's be real here. I drive more traffic to Circa and Jeffrey Benson, who's the manager, than they drive to me. And that's pure fact because he was constantly tweeting about Circa. Jeffrey is a real one and always been very respectful to me. I'll keep driving more traffic to Circa with every tweet, every piece of content and every big bet I can. Jeffrey's the man, even when Circa will only let me bet 20K a pop and then move the line a point right after. So let me tell you what he's saying in case you don't quite get all that. He's basically saying that he's given a lot of free publicity to Circa with all of his social media antics because he's always showing himself betting there. And that he will keep giving them attention. He will keep driving traffic to them. Even though they cut his limits down to 20K per game. So aside from that one Super Bowl bet that they took from him, that... They've cut him down to 20K per game. And then he's saying that as soon as he bets his 20K, then they move the line so others can't bet on what he did without getting one point worse. That's his claim. So then a person named Chicken Bets responded to him and said, I have no issue with Circa or Jeffrey Benson. My question is about your legitimacy. Why don't you post a picket or other verified bet tracker to silence the doubter? So this is a guy asking Sean at the time, why didn't you have some kind of tracking service looking at your bets, one called Picket, P-I-K-K-I-T, or something like them, that can get your picks confidentially and then track what you're doing so this way a reliable service can track your bets and report to the public how well you're doing without having to post them publicly for free. Why haven't you done that? So he said... My record is posted for thousands of people to see every day on Twitter. My record and picks are posted with timestamps every single day, dating back to when I first went public with it. Maybe just do some due diligence before trolling on the internet. You're probably the type of guy that asks questions without Googling it first. And then they start arguing back and forth whether he's being honest with his record. Well, the truth is he's not posting all his bets publicly. He's posted some of them publicly, but he hasn't posted all of them publicly. It's not like the second a game starts, he says, okay, well, this is my bet today. This is my record so far. And then when it's over, he tells you if it won or lost, and here's my record now. He doesn't do that. Like, just sometimes he'll say, oh, okay, I had this game. Good luck, everybody. Or sometimes he'll say afterwards whether he won or lost. So it's, he, it's not easy to look up his record just from what he's posted. That's a lie. But let's get back to Circa. Remember, he was tweeting at Jeffrey Benson... And he was bragging about how much traffic he drove to them. And he claims that it's more traffic driven to them on Twitter than traffic driven from them to him, which is probably true. And 
he kind of said in a backdoor way, hey, guys, I've done so much for you, and that's cool. I'll still do it, even though you've cut my limits to 20K, even if you move the line right after I bet because I'm such an expert. That's cool. I'll just keep bringing the traffic to you guys, though, whatever. So then I guess he didn't get the response he was hoping for. He asked uh, Jeffrey Benson directly if he could have his limits raised. He said, can I have my old limits back, Jeffrey Benson? The limits I had when I was up to 500K within the first week at Circa. I also went top five of 9,000 people in the Circa Survivor. He didn't. He went top 10, but whatever. Where I refused to chop 9.3 million and ninth out of 6,000 plus people in the Circa Millions. I didn't know about that, but maybe. Would love to start firing hard at Circa again. And then Jeffrey Benson responded to him. Jeffrey Benson said, no. However, you can certainly text me on some of the bigger events and we'll do what we can to accommodate you. Hmm. That's a one-sentence answer, and yet it says so much. No, however, you can certainly text me on some of the bigger events, and we'll do what we can to accommodate you. Hmm, hmm, hmm. So what does that mean? Well, to me, it's very clear. It means that Circa is willing to take big action from him on certain big events where they need bets on the other side. But otherwise, they want to keep it down to 20k per pick. And that they now regret giving him limits that high because they've come to realize that he's probably getting his picks fed to him by much sharper people like Sam Several. So I tweeted back. For those of you wondering what's going on here, Sean is getting a lot of his picks from Sam Several's data-driven group. He is their brash moron front man to get them high limits. Circa realizes this, and now will only give him big bets where the action's covered on the other side. Now, of course, that's just my guess. Did Jeffrey Benson respond to this? No. Did Sean Perry respond to this? No. But guess what happened? There was a certain like on my response, and one of those likes was from... Jeffrey Benson. Oh. You think Jeffrey Benson would have liked that response if it was untrue or if it was mostly untrue? I would think not. So him liking it was kind of like saying, yeah, you're right, without him having to say, yeah, you're right. So isn't that interesting? Go ahead and check. He liked that response. Hmm. Manager of the Circus Sportsbook liked that response I posted. So I think that Circa may have been kind of taken in at the beginning with Sean Perry's brashness, and they're thinking, there's no way this kid knows what he's doing. Let's take his money. And they gave him high limits. Then he went on a winning streak. In fact, Sean filmed himself collecting mountains of cash from them when he would approach the Sportsbook desk. I think Circa came to realize when they looked at what he was betting that he wasn't betting stupidly, that he was betting on what looked like the sharp side of these picks. So they decided to not cut him off completely because, again, there's only so much of an edge you're going to have on spreads and totals and money lines, but they didn't want to give him the huge limits they did before because sharp bettors can go on nice streaks and they're never going to give back too much. So there's no point to take on that variance when the person is not making moronic picks or moronic bets. So that's why they cut him down to 20K. 
So he's basically saying to Sean, nope, you're not getting your old 500K limits anymore. We're done with that. We think that you're getting sharp picks from elsewhere. But if you want to fire on big events like the Super Bowl and we happen to need action on the other side, we're happy to take it from you. Interesting. Now, from what I'm saying, wouldn't it sound like Sean Perry is at the very least, at least providing sharp picks to people and betting the sharp sides and doing well enough to where he's been drastically lowered in his limits at Circa. Still, I mean, this whole story I'm giving you would point to him doing very well overall, at least aside from that million-dollar Super Bowl bet, right? Well, not so much. See, there's the old saying and movie... That was then, this is now. Well, in sports betting, that was then, this is now. It doesn't necessarily apply to a few years ago or even a few months ago. It can often be a few weeks ago. Things can change very, very quickly in sports betting, where you can feel like a sports betting god just always doing everything right, always picking everything right, always seeing everything right, to just every single time you pick, you lose, and you're not even close. It's amazing how fast that can change. Well, that has definitely happened to Sean Perry. He has been struggling big time, and he's struggling so badly that he's even admitting publicly that he's struggling. But he is not acknowledging how bad it really has been. It has really been tremendously bad. It's been, in fact, worse than what his upswing was. Because at one point he was saying that he was 7-0 and on his locks of the day, and then I think 12-2 and on his locks of the day, and then 14-3. and And people were telling me, yeah, he, he actually is. And I didn't quite know what to say. I said, okay, I guess Sam Several's picks are pretty good, and he's been lucky. That was what I was thinking. Well, maybe that was the case, but he is definitely not doing that anymore. In fact, he's gone the complete other direction and that direction has been really bad, so bad that I was even doubting that it was as bad as being reported, even though what was reporting it seemed to be something that was pretty reliable. According to Capper's Intel, which is on Twitter, it's Capper's underscore Intel, and they claim to be a service which follows handicappers online and reports their record honestly. It says Capper's Intel, that's Capper's underscore Intel, posting and tracking famous handicappers. This is what they've posted about Sean Perry recently. Sean Perry, 4-33 and 33 in his last 37 picks. And 15-41 and 41 this month. Wow. And that was before a one-in-three day. His lock of the day for February 15th, when this was posted, Pepperdine plus 19.5. Pepperdine lost by 44, so they weren't even close. The daily picks, he won one of the three. Middle Tennessee, UC Davis, and Southern Indiana. I'm not even sure which of the three won, but one of those three won. So he won one of those three, and the lock of the day continues to get crushed and wasn't even close. He had plus 19.5. The team lost by 44. 4 and 33, though, in his prior 37 picks. I guess compared to that, his day was good. His 1 and 3 took it to 5 and 36. 
Can you imagine four and 33 in the last 37 picks? Now, that's hard to do. That's really hard to do. Because if that weren't hard to do, you could just bet the opposite of that. and You'd be 33 and four. I have never gone 33 and four ever in my career in sports betting. I've never gone a streak like that. I've had some good streaks, but I've never won 33 out of 37 games. That's so hard to do unless you bet like massive favorites. If you bet massive favorites, then you can go through 33 and four. But of course, you're not going to make much money because they're massive favorites. I'm talking about like minus 1,000 favorites. But that's not what he was doing. He was mostly betting just minus 110 spreads and totals. Four and 33. Oh, my goodness. So I wasn't sure if Capper's intel was right, but they have a good reputation from what I've heard. So I thought, well, how did this happen? If they're not right about this, what happened? So I messaged the guy who was giving me these picks of Sean Perry's occasionally. And keep in mind, this guy was very high on Sean Perry. At the time this guy was messaging me, he was trying to get me to buy a piece of it, and then he was telling me, look, you know, honestly, like I refused first. I said, I'm not, I'm not paying for him no matter what. That was off the table. So the guy wasn't trying to make a sale anymore. But the guy was telling me, look, he's doing really well on these locks of the day, but the daily picks aren't that great. That's basically what the guy told me and was being honest with me. He even provided me a few picks, most of which won. I wasn't considering subscribing or anything, but I was thinking, okay, well, these look like sharp picks and they look like they could be winning overall in the long run, even though they're running extra hot right now. So I asked this guy, is this true? I sent him the tweet. I said, is this true? He said, yep. (laughs) So there's the verification. Sean Perry, four and 33 in the last 37. And then I tried to ask the guy for more details. He's not even answering me. I think the guy's probably too depressed. He was probably betting these games and getting crushed. So I didn't want to like hassle the guy. He was nice enough to just give me this info for nothing. So I didn't want to demand he tell me more. But he kind of went quiet after that. Four and 33 in the last 37. In February... He said that he is 15 and 41 at that point. That's a lot better than 4 and 33, which means he started off the month 11 and 8 and then went on a 4 and 33 slump. <laughs> the 11 and 8 is good, but the subsequent 4 and 33 is horrendous. Wow. Someone asked me on Twitter. Are you sure that's accurate? Because that's damn hard to do, 4-33. and 33. I mean, you can try to be the worst handicapper in the world. You can't be 4-33. and 33. Because, again, if you could, you could sell those picks and people could just fade you. Someone who's a reliable loser in sports is actually very valuable because you can just bet the opposite of them and you'll print money. So you're not going to lose at that rate either. Even the bad sports bettors are not going to lose at that rate. They're just going to lose at a high enough rate to where they're going to be reliable losers in the medium term and beyond. But 4-33, and 33, wow. So obviously a lot of that's just running really bad. But I can tell you, I've never had a streak like that on either side. I've never had 33-4. and four. I've never had 4-33. or 33. I mean, like, wow, that's a disaster. Now, Sean is not admitting that he's going 4-33, and 33, though people are sharing this tweet to rub it in his face because remember, everybody hates him. But he is admitting that he's not doing well. 
here's one of his videos where he's recording it in the morning outside of his house. Good morning, guys, and welcome to the world of being a sports better. I lose a million dollars in the Super Bowl. I lose a few hundred thousand the day after that. And I lose another few hundred thousand yesterday. It's about $2 million in three days. I'm going to have losing days. If I was it, I'd be a billionaire on the cover of Forbes, smiling next to Oprah and the Queen. I've been in this world a long time of sports betting and playing poker. And I've been at the top of it ever since I've dropped out of school at the age of 19. I became a millionaire within one week of dropping out of school. How I've had so much success is during tough times, I don't tilt off my money. I don't go on tilt. I know if I keep beating the closing lines long term, I'm going to make money. So when I have losing days, I just know have bankroll discipline, have bankroll management, so I can weather the storm, always be in action, and I know long run, I will make money. It's what I've been doing my whole life. Okay, so that's not the worst message if it were to be true. You know, to stay consistent, to have bankroll management, to have a sound strategy. In his case, he likes trying to beat the closing line, as I already talked about which, again, isn't as valuable as he thinks it is, but it is a strategy that has some validity. But hold on a second. He bet $1.1 million on the Super Bowl, where it was very clear that there wasn't really much of an edge on either side. That was very much a recreational-type bet. That's a bet you just make because you want to have some extra fun watching the game. The Super Bowl notoriously has one of the sharpest lines out there. Part of it is because there's so much analysis that goes into it, and part of it is because there is so much money going into it that automatically pushes the line to the proper place anyway. So you're not going to get rich betting on who's going to win the Super Bowl by the spread. You're just not. So you can do it for fun. So how is he engaging in bankroll management betting on something like the Super Bowl for $1.1 million. What, does he have a billion dollars? Because you'd need something like that if that's what you're betting and you're performing bankroll management. So that's a bunch of bullshit. Why he made that bet, I don't know. I don't know if it was degeneracy. I don't know if it was publicity, attention-seeking. I don't know what. I have to imagine it was probably attention-seeking. It's even possible that he had some money back on the other side and just ate the juice. That's even possible. Who knows? It's even possible that he could have been given some incentive with Circa. I'm not saying he was, but maybe if they really needed money on the other end, he was willing to put a million bucks on it. Maybe they were willing to give him back some money on the juice side. And then he could go bet it somewhere else on another book on the other side and just take a guaranteed loss. Who knows? Like, attention is so important to this guy, you never know. But he's not performing bankroll management and discipline. It's a bunch of bullshit. The Pepperdine game, which I told you he lost by a wide margin, he said, Pepperdine, we got at plus 19 and a half. This line closed at plus 18. We crushed the closing line. Yes, we lost today, but long-term we will win if we continue beating the closing line. He did admit he was 1-3 that day, just like that Capper's intel showed. However, 
He claimed that he's 43-30-2 with his daily picks and 26-15 and with the lock of the day. And some people are claiming that's not an accurate record, that he's inflating it. I don't have all the games he's bet, so I can't tell you for sure. But based on that 4-33 and run, there's no way this could be true. I just don't believe it. He claims that the lock of the day is 4-9 out of the last 13. That was his claim on February 15th after those games completed. The Pepperdine 19-and-a-half game, I didn't look at that game. I'm not betting college anymore, but a 19-and-a-half moving to 18 on a big dog like that, that's a typical sharp bet. That's what a sharp would do. Now, as you see, it doesn't always win. Here, it didn't even come close. But that's typically what a sharp would do. Recreational bettors don't like betting games like that because they just hate taking the much worse team. Because when there's a team that's plus 19 and a half, they're terrible compared to their opponent. So people just don't like betting on the much worse team, even if they're getting a lot of points. So the fact that he did bet on that side of it, and the fact that the line did move one and a half points, at least so he claims, that would indicate that there was some analysis here and that he was on the sharp side and it just got crushed. But you have to look at a lot of factors. You can't just follow what you see the sharps doing. You have to look at a lot of factors before you put these in. If you just always do what you think the quote sharp side is, you're you're not going to win either. Well, he claims that on the 16th, the day that just passed, we're now in the early morning of the 17th, he claims that he finally had a nice day. Now, he did lose the over in the St. Peter's game by half a point and posted a gif of someone throwing a chair through a window. (laughs) But I guess he did win the St. Peter's minus nine spread bet. So I guess he split that one. Then he showed a daily pick that won. Then he showed a free play that I guess he gives out in his telegram that was an under on the Canisius game, won. And then he also won with uh, San Diego State minus six, which is a daily pick. So he wrote, we back, baby. And he showed himself going four and one on the day of the 16th, which I believe. But okay. He was really running through a horrendous streak there. He shows that he would have gone 5-0 and had it not been for losing by half a point in the St. Peter's over, that it finished at exactly 128, and he had 128 and a half. So I believe that he just ran on both sides of variance. I think that he was unusually lucky with the picks he was making earlier when they were doing well. I think he's been unusually unlucky in most of the month of February including that horrendous 4-33 and streak. I think there is some sharpness to these picks, at least the locks. But this is really no better than you're going to get by following anyone who's sharp. There's a lot of people who give those picks away for free. In fact, I give away picks like that for free. I'm not doing college anymore, but on the NBA, on the NFL, on baseball coming up, on the NHL... I'm giving picks like that for free. I don't have any tout service. So there's no point to pay for something like that. And all this bullshit of him just crushing it and winning all this money, 
you can see it's bullshit. He just happened to be on a hot streak. And now you're seeing the very opposite of it. I mean, 4-33, and 33, oh my gosh. So what is the story with him? Before we close this topic, we have a lot of stuff to do, and we spent a long time on him. Before we close this topic, what is going on with Sean Perry? Because people are saying he's a scammer. People are saying that he's a Vegas Dave-like scammer. Vegas Dave is someone who uses all the different tout gimmicks, including the units bullshit, and then all kinds of other little tricks to claim that he's the greatest of all time, when really he's not providing anyone anything of value, yet somehow idiots still keep buying his picks and he makes a lot of money. So is he really like a younger version of Vegas Dave? Or is he something else? Well, he does have some things in common with Vegas Dave. He is very brash. He constantly brags about being the best. He doesn't have the skill he claims he has. He kind of comes off as a moron. He infuriates people. Everybody in the sports betting world thinks he's a joke. I mean, that can be said about both of these guys. However, I think Sean is actually providing some picks on the sharp side that are being probably given to him by somebody else like Sam. I don't think these picks are anything special. I think this is all about attention. Sure, he's selling them. If he wanted the most attention, he'd just give them out for free. So it's a combination of attention and a business venture. And I think the business part is probably because Sam wouldn't be doing this, or whoever's giving him these picks, they probably would not be generating these picks and putting out the effort into making these picks if there wasn't some money in it for them. So it might even just be them who wants the money, who are demanding that he sells these and they get a piece of it. And this is probably a business venture they're doing together. Remember, this money has to come from somewhere that he's been betting. He's not just snapping his fingers or pulling it off the money tree. You know, he's getting money somehow. It's still a mystery where this money's all coming from. It's a mystery where it came from in the first place. He said he made a million dollars like in the first week after dropping out of school. It sounds like bullshit to me. It sounds like big bullshit. I don't know if this is some kind of family money we don't know about. I don't know if this is some sort of illegal money that might be cycled through him, like a money laundering thing. I don't know if he has just backers that stupidly have faith in him. I don't know if perhaps he's just being used to lay off action. That's a possibility a lot of people are not considering. There are some bookies out there who take very large bets from whales. I'm talking about illegal bookies. And they can't really afford for the whales to go on a hot streak and crush them. But they don't want to lose the action because they know they'll win long term against the whale, but they don't have the bankroll to take the bets against the whale. So what they do to not lose these whales from betting with them is they will then rebet those same games on a regular sports book. And the whale won't know that. So they'll just lay off the action they don't want. So if a whale wants to bet $500,000 on a game, they'll take the 500000 from the whale. And if they're only comfortable taking twenty k of that action, they'll go take four hundred eighty k of it and bet it with a regular book. And then just take whatever the book pays them or doesn't pay them. And that's what the whale gets back. So the whale is transparent to the whale. They think they're betting it with a bookie. So this could be where Sean Perry is somebody's designated guy to lay off action. That he's helping someone lay off action. 
It could be that. There's a lot of different ways this could go where Sean Perry is placing bets like this. But it's not what it appears to be. He could even be somebody's runner, somebody's proxy, that they need him to place the bets because they've been cut off. And he established this whole crazy young guy betting wildly routine and that some casinos are willing to take his action for the moment. Not Circa anymore, up to, or at least not past 20K. But you can see how these possibilities are ones where he would not be risking a lot of money. So these are all things to consider. Not everything in the gambling world is what it appears to be. It's like that in poker. It's like that in sports betting. Especially like that on social media. When you see a gambler show up on social media who out of nowhere is just betting huge money and you don't know where it all came from and the guy doesn't seem to have a solid strategy that should be generating this type of money nor the reputation that he's been generating this type of money and he somehow just has it and you really see he's placing bets like this but you just don't understand the whole thing, a lot of times there's way more to the story. That's true, I'm guessing, with Sean Perry. That's true, I'm guessing, with Mickey Maz, who we had on this show. True with a lot of them. A lot of it is just posturing and attention-seeking. I don't think this is a direct scam. And that's where I differ from most of the other people who are observing Sean Perry on Twitter. Most of the people on Twitter think he's just an outright scammer who's pulling picks out of his ass, pretending to win, pretending to be betting huge, maybe really betting huge occasionally, and selling expensive picks to suckers that really have no skill behind them. I don't believe that's entirely true. I think these picks do have some sharpness to them. I don't think they're anything special. I think you could find the same thing of the same quality for free online. And I think there's something odd with his whole thing with having a bankroll in the first place, where the money comes from, and with all this money that was being bet... I don't know how much of this is actually his. There's a lot of questions regarding that. But is this really a scam? Well, it's being over-promoted and over-promised. I think he's exaggerating his record. I think that he's downplaying how bad the recent streak actually was. But do I think these picks are better than flipping a coin? Yes. Should you subscribe to them? Absolutely not. Would I call this a scam? Eh, I'd say kind of like a semi-scam at worst. Does he deserve any respect as a sports better? No. I don't even think he's really making these picks. I think these are being fed to him. Even if these were crushing it, he wouldn't deserve respect. You, you don't get respect by just parroting somebody else's picks that they're giving to you in the background and they don't want the credit for it. So that's where I stand on Sean Perry. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm partially right. But my feeling is that I'm pretty close. Let's move on. The WSOP posted their schedule for the 2024 event that's going to take place at Paris and the Horseshoe, formerly known as Bally's. It is a 99-event schedule. I don't know why they didn't make it an even 100. Why not throw one more event so they can say they're having 100 bracelets given out this year? I think they would have a nicer ring to it. 
they're not even so much promoting the 99. I mean, they're mentioning it, but it's not treated like a big deal. Is this the highest number of bracelets ever handed out at a summer World Series of Poker? Answer, yes. Every year that number seems to grow. Well, here's my analysis of this schedule from my glancing at it today. I haven't had a lot of time to go over it because it's 99 events and it just dropped today. And I was going to spend some time looking at this in more detail. And then I woke up with all this nausea and I I couldn't stand to look at it for very long. I just eventually went back to sleep. But here's what I saw from it. First of all, they are putting a lot of the 1500 type events early in the series now, more than before. That's something that jumped out at me immediately. Where if you're one of these people that prefers to play the 1500 events, especially the 1500 limit and mixed type events, you're going to see a lot more of these at the beginning of the series compared to before where they were really strewn about the series. Now, it's always been the case that like the 1500 Omaha 8 event was one of the first of the series. And that's true again this year. It does start earlier this year by a few days than it ever has. At least I shouldn't say ever, but ever in the uh, modern times. The first event is May 28th, which is the $5,000 Champions Reunion No Limit Hold'em Freeze-Out. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but that's the first event. And then there's the Casino Employees event on the 28th. Then there's the $500, quote, WSOP kickoff No Limit Hold'em Freeze-Out, which is basically just a $500 No Limit event that you can't re-enter. That's on the 29th. And then later on the 29th is the 08 for 1500 And the Mystery Millions, remember that popular event, the one where there's going to always be at least $1 million bounty that you can win if you've knocked out at least one person, that Matt Glantz ended up winning the million in 2022. The Mystery Millions is taking place again early in the series, just like it did last year. That was the considered the big field no-limit event that they always have at the beginning of the series. There's always some type of big field no-limit they have. Last year, it was the Mystery Millions. This year, it is going to be again. It's going to be on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, the 30th, 31st, and 1st. And then also on the 2nd, they have four flights. But in between all those four flights, a number of more of these 1500s are going to take place. A 1500 dealer's choice on the 30th, a 1500 limit hold'em on the 31st, a 1500 badoogie on the 2nd of June, and then even a $1500 no limit six-handed on the 3rd, then a $1500 PLO8 event on the 4th. That event is frequently not until the middle of the series. Then a $1,500 PLO event, not PLO 8, but just PLO event on the 5th. Noticing a pattern here? $1,500 deuce to 7 low ball, triple draw, a limit event on the 6th. Hmm. On the 7th, a $1,500 no limit hold'em shootout. On the 9th, a $1,500 big O. 
which ran for the first time last year. On the 10th, $1,500 no-limit hold and freeze-out. On the 11th, $1,500 seven-card stud. It was not like this last year. You didn't have this whole row of $1,500 events one after another after another, day after day. Is it over? Nope. On the 12th, 1500 horse. So, so far, we've gone through this. We've had a $1,500 event every single day, except for on June 8th, once they started getting going. Every day except June 8th. So after the 12th, which is the 1500 horse, on the 13th, there's nothing. But on the 14th, now there's the 1500 monster stack. On the 14th, there's also on the same day, 1500 Raz. On the 15th, $1,500 mixed No Limit Hold'em and PLO double board bomb pot, which is a new event. That's where there's actually a double board of flops, turns, and rivers. Some people are complaining that the No Limit Hold'em shouldn't be part of it, that the bomb pot PLO game has become popular in certain card rooms, but it's never No Limit Hold'em. It's always PLO bomb pot. Some people don't like that, that they've mixed it. But it's another 1500 event. On the 16th, 1500 Mixed Omaha, which is Big O, 08, and PLO, which, by the way, is a change. It used to be 08, PLO 08, and Big O, unless this is a misprint. Maybe it's a misprint. There were a few misprints on the schedule earlier. Well, then it finally stops... You do have a 1500 Super Turbo Bounty No Limit freeze out on the 20th, but for the most part, this stops. You have the Millionaire Maker on the 21st, but there's not as many 1500s after that. You do have a 1500 No Limit Deuce to Seven Low Ball. So that's on the 25th. But I mean, look at that first half of the series, just day after day after day 1500s. And before they were strewn about the World Series. Here you get like the first half of the series is a bunch of 1500s just about every day. And then it mostly stops. Another notable thing that has changed about the World Series of Poker schedule compared to last year. This will only affect some of you, though we do have a pretty old audience here. So it does affect a lot of you. There are two seniors events this year. That's a new thing. There's always been just one seniors event. This year, there are two, and the olds on Twitter are taking notice of this. A lot of them are already commenting on it. The Seniors event is one of the fastest-growing events. In fact, it may be the fastest-growing event at the World Series because the sad fact about poker is it's getting old. And I can say that personally because I'm part of poker, and I'm getting old. And I wasn't that old when I started, but now I'm getting old. Now I'm 52. So there's a lot of people like me who started when they were young or young middle-aged, and now we're past 50. So every year that passes, more and more people who are existing poker players qualify for the seniors event. And they like to play it because they get away from a lot of these good and aggressive young players who are not able to play it. I have been able to play the seniors event for two years. This will be the third being 52. I ran deep both years I played. In fact, I got almost an identical result. And in fact, I had a very similar trajectory both years. Both years, I also entered three bullets. 
Both years I did walk away profitable despite entering three bullets. And both years I was very close to busting that third bullet and then had a big comeback and ran deep. It's funny how similar it was. And both years I busted against uh, pocket jacks. A lot of similarities between the two years for me. We'll see if I can do better this year. But in 2023, they got over 8,000 people, 8,140 entries, which is the most they've ever had. And I bet it will beat that in 2024. You can enter up to four times, two times on the first day, two times on the second day. And it's a $1,000 buy-in. Last year, the top prize was 765000 And interestingly, the second place finisher was Poker Hall of Famer Billy Baxter. And Dan Highmiller, another well-known older player, finished third. So that was uh, interesting that those two prominent players made the final table in that massive field. I finished in the low 200s. I forgot my exact place, which easily cashed, obviously, in a field of 8,880 players. So finally, the World Series of Poker came to discover that they can take more advantage of this. Because prior to this, they had a seniors and they had a super seniors. But to play the super seniors, you had to be 60 or above. So that eliminates a lot of people, including me, who are over 50 but not over 60. In fact, if you go to the seniors event and take a walk around the field, you will notice that most of the people are between 50 and 60. So you take out all the 50s people and you lose a lot of that field. So that's why the Super Seniors gets a much smaller field. That 10-year range there, at least at the moment, comprises most of the field of the Seniors event. So with all those Seniors loving to play this event, why not have another one? In fact, that's what the win did. The win had a $1,000 entry Seniors event and a $10,000 entry Seniors High Roller event. Well... These two rivals, the WSOP and WPT Win series, which have become increasingly bitter toward one another, and there's been some copying of events between them. So this mystery bounty, by the way, that was at the WPT Win before it came to the World Series of Poker. I believe the WSOP again took a page from the WPT Win that had two seniors events, and now they have their own seniors high roller event, except it's not 10K, it is 5K. And you know what? I'll give the World Series credit. This is better. The win I felt overreached and made a 10,000, which is a bit too high. The reason it's too high is not only is it just a lot of money, but it discourages a lot of recreational players from playing. Because a lot of recs who are seniors... They don't want to pay 10k to enter a seniors event. Some will pay 10k to enter the WSOP main event because that's kind of special. But a seniors event, 10k, that's pretty steep unless you're really rich. So 5k is much more palatable, and I think you'll get some more wrecks in that one. You don't want it to just be a bunch of really good seniors. You don't want to be a field full of Billy Baxter's and Dan Highmillers. There's no value in playing that. But if you get a lot of recreational players, then it can be worth playing if you're a decent player over 50. In fact, I am considering playing that, but the problem is it's not at a good point of the schedule for me. Because 
the rest of the events around there, the only other one that I would like to play is uh, maybe the seven-card stud high-low, which would interfere with the senior's high roller anyway if I made day two. And maybe the millionaire maker before that. But really, that's kind of a stretch of the World Series where there's not a lot I'm really interested in playing. And it was a time I was considering being away from Vegas so I could be with my family. So I'm not going to be there the whole you know seven weeks that the thing's running. And that was a stretch I was probably not going to be around. But I kind of want to play that, too. I don't know what to say. But a lot of people are talking about that on Poker Twitter, who are old enough to play it. I'm sure they're going to try to beat last year's main event numbers where they broke 10K entrance for the first time. They just barely did it. We'll see if they can get more than that. There are still four starting days, as there were last year. The four starting days are from the 3rd through the 6th, as there were last year. The final table is going to end. There's going to be a winner crowned on July 17th, just like last year. And day two will be a combination of A, B, and C flights on July 7th, and just the D flight on July 8th, just like last year. And from that point, everybody combines on July 9th for day three, and there's no further breaks, except for July 15th, when they're down to nine people, just like last year. So is the main event just like last year? Answer, yes. <laughs> it's just like last year. They had a top prize of $12.1 million last year, which got some criticism because it was artificially propped up to be slightly more than the 06 prize for Jamie Gold. And they did that despite the fact that they pay 15% of the field now as compared to 10% back then. So they just artificially made that too much, and then they paid too little to ninth place. So that got some criticism. I'm sure Daniel Weinman, who ended up winning it, was happy with that because he got $12.1 million. Well, not quite, because uh, some of the guys had pieces of him there in the audience. In fact, I wonder if Matt Lance had a piece. I know he's friends with him. I believe Sean Deeb had a piece. I believe they're friends. So some of the guys were really cheering hard for him on the rail weren't just because they were his friend, but they also had pieces of him. So I don't think he took home all $12.1 million, But I'm sure he was happy that that prize was inflated. But I bet that they're going to beat it because they've been giving away a lot of seats, not directly giving away, but running a lot of satellites, running a lot of satellites on GG Poker, just doing whatever they can to prop up the numbers. So that's how they got there last year. Plus, the marketing's very good. I mean, they have really, really good marketing for the World Series. There's no question. I have my criticisms for Caesars when justified, and this does happen often, but I won't criticize their marketing. Their marketing is tremendous. I have no suggestions for improvements to their marketing. If they gave me the job of marketing, I could not do nearly as well as they have done. They've done an amazing job at marketing this, at continually growing the World Series of Poker, even while poker's contracting. They've just been very good at that. And they've been pretty good at selecting events for it to attract people to come play. So all of that, they've done a tremendous job. There's no question about that. So between the excellent marketing and the ways that they can just prop up the numbers... I believe they will beat last year's record of the 10,043 that entered. 
I will be there at the main event. If you are planning to be there at the main event, then uh, you can let me know. I'll come say hello to you. Of course, this is quite some time away, being in July, and we're only in February right now. But if you're there at the time, you're welcome to text me there, 775-372-8355, and I'll come say hello to you. There's a lot of breaks and other time you're not playing at the World Series, so a lot of time to do so. By the way, some people are afraid to interrupt me if they see me playing. I'll tell you something. If I'm not in a hand, uh, I'm pretty bored at these events. (laughs) I don't find the World Series of Poker boring or I wouldn't do it, but I'm just saying that in between hands, what I usually do is just get on my phone and whatever. Like at the beginning, I'll I'll watch the way people are playing and get an idea of that so I, I know how to play them. So you have to do that or you're robbing yourself of a potential edge or potential information that you need to play against these people. But after a while, you get pretty familiar familiar with everybody, and there's really not much to look at anymore except for some big hands that go down that might be interesting. So you start to just kind of tune out the action and get on your phone or whatever in between hands. So if I'm in a hand, no, don't bother me, of course. But after hands are over and I'm just sitting there waiting for others to play, if you see me you like on the rail and I'm close enough, you could say hello. I've had people like want to say hello, and then they're afraid to say anything because they think I'm going to be mad they're interrupting me. But if you can see I have no cards and I'm just like looking at my phone, you can say hi. So hopefully I can outdo last year's $32,500 cash. I've never had a min cash at the World Series of Poker. I've come close five times to a min cash and bubbled all five times. And then the other times I have cash, I've gotten way past the min cash point. <laughs> so... I just have never had a min cash or anywhere close to a min cash. In fact, this thirty-two and a half thousand I got was the smallest cash I've gotten at the World Series, and that's more than double the min cash of fifteen k. I just never gotten a min cash in all my time playing. Not that I'm looking for a min cash this year. I'll take it over no cash, but I'm not looking for a min cash. I'm looking for the big money, looking for a deep run. Of the new events that they're having. There is an $800 Independence Day celebration, and I'm sure you would expect that's going to be on July 4th. No, the Independence Day celebration is on July 3rd. (laughs) Come on. (sighs) Why? I think it's because they need to have room for it. And flight A of the main event is always the smallest, and that's on July 3rd. So they probably are afraid that July 4th, flight B will have too many people, and they're not going to be able to fit in the Independence Day celebration, so they have it on the 3rd. How stupid is that? The Independence Day celebration is on the 3rd. It's like what Colonel Fabersham once noted on this show, that the Beverly Hills 90210 fan club back in the day... If you wanted to join it, you had to write to a P.O. box that was in Beverly Hills, California, 90213. (laughs) Same thing. Like, how do you have a 90210 fan club actually based out of Beverly Hills and not get a P.O. box in 90210? (laughs) What made someone walk into the 90213 post office and say, yeah, let's get the P.O. box here. Let's not go down the street to 90210. And get the P.O. box in that zip code. Like, how stupid is that? (laughs) 90213. So this isn't much better, though. An Independence Day celebration on July 3rd. There is what's called the Mid-Stakes Championship 
on July 11th, this is after the main has started, of course, $3,000 buy-in. That's kind of a weird thing, a mid-stakes championship. What does that even mean? Like, what they're trying to say is it's not a 10K event, and it's not a small event. It's kind of middle. So it's not 10K, it's not 1,000 or 1,500, it's not 500, it's 3,000. So we're just going to call it the mid-stakes championship. That's very weird. Kind of seems like a gimmick to me. There's also a mystery bounty PLO on July 9th, again, starting after the main. That's something new. I think they're trying to find a reason for people to stay around since the mystery bounty No Limit Hold'em has been such a success. They've added a 10K Big O event for the first time. Keep in mind, there was no Big O event at all until 2023. By the way, I think they added that Big O event partially due to my suggestion in 23. I never did suggest a 10K version of it, but uh, they've added that as well, since the Big O did very well last year, as I kept telling them it would. I kept saying, add a damn Big O event. It's very popular. People want to play it. Do a 1500 Big O. It'll crush. They did a 1500 Big O. It did crush. And they said, oh, what do you know? It did well. So they have now thrown in a 10K version of it as well on June 13th. And I already mentioned the double board bomb pod and the seniors high roller. And then there's also now a six-handed eight-game mixed on July 10th for 10K. I can't imagine that's going to get a ton of people, but uh, that is a new event as well. Overall, I wouldn't say this is a groundbreaking schedule as far as new and innovative things. Most of this is a repeat of last year. I mean, even the main event dates are identical to last year. Really, of all these new things they added, the only things that are really notable are the double bomb pot PLO no limit event and the seniors 5K event. Those are the two most notable additions. Everything else is just kind of blah. But they have racked up 99 events here. The way they laid this out, I actually think is better Remember I mentioned at the beginning about all the 1500s that are kind of together one after another after another? I think that's better. It was always an irritant to me that if you like playing these 1500s, that you have to keep coming into Vegas and leaving or just staying for almost the whole series. Because there's a lot of crossover in who plays these. And I'm talking about the ones that are not No Limit Hold'em. So the non- NLH events that are 1,500 buy-in. There's a lot of crossover in that crowd. There's a lot of mixed game players who play those, a lot of limit players who play those. There's a lot of people who like the PLO variants who play those. So you'll see a lot of the same people entering these, which means you want to put them together. You want to make it easy for the people with interest in these events to make one trip to Vegas and do them. And if you spread them all around, then it becomes a pain in the ass. Now, what can suck is that they will start to interfere with one another because these are mostly 2 p.m. starting events, meaning that a lot of the people who make day two are not going to cash. So it's one thing to make day two and know you've cashed and then go from there. It's another thing to make day two and half that field is not going to cash. So there you can make day two, and your choice at that point, if you don't cash, is to either just 
miss the next day's event you wanted to play or enter late. That's kind of a pain. And that's going to happen with a lot of these 2 p.m. 1500 events that they're running. So let's look at the beginning. May 29th, you play 1508. All right, great. That's a pretty big field event. People like it. But then on May 30th is the 1500 dealer's choice, which gets a lot of the same people. And by the way, the dealer's choice is not the actual dealer choosing. It's the person with the dealer button choosing from a big list of games they can play. That's what dealer's choice is. So let's say you make day two of the 08. Well, you're going to miss part of the dealer's choice then. And it has a lot of the same people. So ideally, events that are back-to-back in days are not going to have the same typical entrance. But I know there's only so much they could do to prevent that. So that's the one downside of cramming these 1500s together. Then look at May 31st. You have... 1500 Limit Hold'em. Well, again, the dealer's choice people who a lot of them would have played Limit Hold'em now can't if they made day two or will have to come late. And then the Limit Hold'em, at least uh, there's nothing really interfering with it on the first, so that's good. That's one other day there's no 1500. Then on the second, there's 1500 Badoogie. Now, the second is fine because you made day three of the Limit Hold'em. You're you're happy enough. You've made it very deep. You're okay to miss the Badoogie on the, 15, on the second. Then on the third is a 1500 No Limit Hold'em, which isn't quite the same crowd, but somewhat of the same crowd. It's still 1500. And then there's a PLO8 on the fourth. So at least they, they did at least throw in a no limit in between there. So this is better than I thought. I, I'll, I'll take back a little of my criticism. Because, yeah, you have the PLO8 1500 and the PLO 1500 on back-to-back days, and that's not great. But there's only so much they can do. But at least in some of these cases, the 1500s they're offering are no-limit events, which attract kind of a different crowd. So kind of taking a look at this, I guess someone who's kind of like a mixed game player and an Omaha player, they can still play most of these without having to mix other events. So yeah, I like this. I like this uh, bunching of the 1500s. I think it's much better than before. So props to them on that. In fact, I complained about the other way. I complained about them spreading it too much before. I haven't come up yet with a schedule of what I'm going to play. Last year, I missed the Big O, which was new and may have been added in part because of me. I missed that. I missed the Mixed Omaha. And I missed one other thing I wanted to play, which I'm forgetting now. Because I had a big family event in the middle of June. And that had to take priority. I also probably wouldn't have played anyway because I had a very bad cold. And one, I wouldn't have wanted to get everybody sick. It was a really bad cold that I caught at the World Series. A lot of people caught there. And second, I would have felt crappy and not wanted to play under those conditions. So I probably wouldn't have played anyway. But either way, I missed them. I don't have a big event like that this year, but I'm going to have to figure out when I can make it and when I can't, just with family responsibilities. So it's not like the old days where I could just spend the entire seven weeks at the World Series of Poker. I know there's a belief by some people that I'm just a Hold'em player, but that hasn't been the case for quite some time. I am also an Omaha player. I'm also a stud player. I can play some of the other mixed games. I have various levels of skill at these. You know, some I'm better than others, so... Some of them I feel more comfortable with than others, and some of them I'm just kind of taking a shot. But I can play a lot of these well enough to feel okay playing a World Series of Poker event. 
am I selling action this year? At the moment, the answer is no. And if I change my mind, I'll let you know. But I just kind of got tired of it. I mentioned this before that, number one, it's a pain in the ass collecting and then distributing money. Especially if I have to issue tax forms if I cash something big. Also, there starts to be potential burdens that there wouldn't be if I wasn't selling action. Like one time when I had an emergency and ended up late to a day two. And then I just ended up giving everybody back their buy-in. Because I felt it wasn't fair to everybody that I was late for day two. So that happened once. Also, I feel guilty if I make a bad play or a bad move or something and knock myself out. I feel guilty like I let everybody down. I don't feel guilty if I took bad beats. You know, that, that happens as part of poker. But if I make a bad decision at the table... And then I knock myself out, especially close to the money or something like that, or well within the money where I could have won something big, and I don't. You know, it's bad enough to have to deal with making that mistake and the consequence from it, but then to have to feel guilty that you screwed everybody else who bought a piece of you, that's an extra burden. I don't like having it on my mind, like, well, I would try this if it was just me entering, but, you know, 40% of me is sold here. I shouldn't do this to the backers, and I don't want to have that line of thought when I'm playing, and you can say, well, just forget that. Play what, the way you want to play. But, you know, I just don't like this on my mind at all. Then there was another situation which kind of came up in the same way for Rampage not too long ago. And that was where I didn't realize that I could rebuy to an event. So I busted from an event that had rebuys and I didn't realize it had rebuys. So I hadn't sold any pieces for a rebuy, only for the first bullet where I busted. And then I rebought Well, the only way to handle it at that point is to play on your own dime. There's nothing you can do because all of the money that was previously spent on your buy-in on the first bullet is now worth... Zero point zero. So I couldn't just say, well, now that I've bought a second bullet, now you own half of this because you had part of the first bullet because that doesn't work. Because once I've busted the first bullet, that's actually worth zero. So I can't make that zero worth half of my next bullet. That cheats me. Because what if I didn't enter a second bullet and I just decided at the end, okay, I won the event, but I'm only giving you half of what you bought because uh, technically I would have given you a second half of the second bullet had I bought that. You'd be furious. You'd call me a scammer and you'd be right. So there just is no way to handle it. Once you've only collected the money for the first bullet and you want to spend money on a second bullet, you have to do it yourself. There's no other way around it. And Ethan Rampage Yao ran into that recently, but unlike me, who busted that second bullet anyway, so it was a moot point, he won the event, and then there was some controversy surrounding that. He didn't have to give anything to anybody, but he did anyway just to keep the optics looking good for people who didn't understand. So, like, that sort of thing I don't want to worry about. I don't want to say, well, I was only planning to play one or two bullets, but I'm going to enter a third now. But I never collected the money for the third, so I'm going to play this on my own dime. And like, like, think if I win on a third bullet after selling two and busting them, and then I win the whole thing for big money on the third bullet, and then I say, well, you're not getting any of that. No, none of you get any of that because that was all on my own dime. Like, even if you understand it, you'll just have kind of a shitty feeling. Like, you'll feel like you were kind of cheated even though you weren't. So I don't want that. I don't want the pressure of all that. I don't want the potential drama from all that. So while I do enjoy having people own pieces of me and rooting for me and having some money in the whole game, 
just the downsides are too much, so I, I just don't want to do it. But maybe I'll change my mind. I will be giving updates, as I always have been, on the Dandruff Poker Twitter. That's twitter.com slash dandruffpoker. I will continue doing that, and it'll also auto-post on the appropriate threads in the World Series of Poker forum on Poker Fraud Alert, as it always does. So you can see those updates there as well. And I try to update a lot so you can feel like you're there. So even without a piece of me, if you just want to kind of see the World Series through my eyes as a player, I encourage you to follow that. And feel free to respond to me if you're watching it. And you know, I have people responding with encouraging comments. I read all of that and it feels good. It is encouraging to read that stuff. I'm not asking you to send me encouraging tweets. I'm just saying, yeah, if you want to, don't feel like you don't want to say it because it'll bother me or something, because it won't. It's the opposite. So I will be doing that again this year, whether I sell pieces or not. But at the moment, I'm leaning towards not, as has been the case throughout all of the 2020s so far. I've never sold a piece of the main, so if I do decide to sell anything, it will be other than the main. The main, I just like playing for the huge money all on my own. And if I make it, then I get the huge money and pocket it. I'm going to do a bonus topic about Christopher Mitchell. Something kind of funny happened. He has been claiming that he's going to the Super Bowl. That's been his claim. And of course, now that the Super Bowl has concluded, we know the answer. So he started off claiming that he bought a ticket for $25,000, which we knew was a lie. We knew he did not buy a ticket for twenty-five k. He exaggerates everything. So even when he is telling the truth about something he did, he will always exaggerate the cost of it to make himself look richer. So we knew he didn't buy a twenty-five k ticket. But he was claiming that he was going. At one point, it kind of seemed like he was giving himself an out, claiming that people were clamoring to buy his 25k ticket for 50k and that he's considering selling it <laughs> which we knew was not true first of all there was no 25k ticket at the time he bought the ticket that would have appreciated in value like that and second who was clamoring to buy it like he didn't have it for sale so who was approaching him offering to pay 50k for a ticket that went for 25. The whole thing didn't make sense. I thought this was like an excuse as to why he didn't go because he'd claim he sold it for 50k and made a 25k profit. But that's not what he ended up doing. He did show himself there at the Super Bowl. He really was at the Super Bowl. But his 25k ticket was actually behind the netting near one of the field goals. <laughs> He actually had an obstructed view. And he claimed he was in the front row. He kept bragging he had his front row Super Bowl tickets. He's obsessed with the front row at sporting events. So he'll buy like the shittiest front row seat that exists in the place and say, folks, folks, it looks like, folks, I'm in the front row. Folks, this is what being a millionaire gambler gets you, folks. I am in the front row here at the World Series. Like, that's what he would do. So he'd be in a seat in the front row that's much worse than like a much further back row elsewhere in the stadium. 
because he'd have a crappy view just in the front. So that's what he did here. Except he wasn't even in the front. He was like third row, actually behind the netting. I'm surprised he even showed this by one of the field goals. So he didn't even have an unobstructed view. <laughs> he went. We estimated he probably got this ticket for like 7K. And we think that he waited to the last minute to buy it. Or close to the last minute. But he did go. But he's an additional $1,000 lighter for the experience. Not because he was actually at the game. But he held a contest. Now, Christopher Mitchell has held other contests before. And it seemed like either he just stopped talking about the contest and never paid anyone. Or there would be some mysterious winner that we suspected was really him. But this contest, someone won. It was a pretty tough contest to win, and that was to guess the exact score of the Super Bowl. And because this score finished with kind of a non-standard result, see, in football, most of the results are a multiple of 7 or of 7 plus 3. So, like, a typical score would be something like 21 to 10, where... One team scored three touchdowns, and the other team scored a touchdown and a field goal. 25-22, which was the final score, neither of these numbers are very common scores for a team to finish with, because these are not multiples of seven, nor are they multiples of seven plus some multiples of three. So 25 and 22 are both uncommon numbers to finish with. So it just wasn't likely that these numbers would have been picked. At least not with the number of followers he has, which isn't tremendous on Facebook. Well, what do you know? A guy named Dustin, I think it was Dustin Morgan, ended up guessing the right score. 25-22. So then Christopher said, okay, I'll pay you. Now we were skeptical if this was really going to get paid. And then Dustin posted proof and showed that he had been paid by Christopher and said, you know, Christopher is a man of his word and paid out the $1,000 prize. So people thought, wow, for once Christopher actually did something honest. Very rare for him. And I do believe he actually did pay Dustin. And I do believe Dustin is real. I don't think Dustin is him. So why am I talking about this? Am I trying to praise Christopher Mitchell for something? No. I'm trying to laugh at Christopher Mitchell for something because it appears that this Dustin Morgan guy was a scammer and edited his post to be the final score after the game was over. (laughs) And somehow Christopher didn't notice. (laughs) So he paid it out. The one time he pays out a contest, it's to another scammer. And then after he got paid, then Dustin quickly deleted his post, hoping it wouldn't get caught. So, of course, people on Poker Fraud Alert caught it and were laughing about this. There's some kind of email chain between Christopher Mitchell and some members of this forum. I'm not part of it, but there's some kind of email chain where Christopher occasionally will respond. He's on this like email list of a bunch of people. And... People from this forum just keep trolling him. This forum, meaning Poker Fraud Alert's forum. So one of the guys in the forum was trying to mock Christopher that he wasn't going to pay. Because this was before it was discovered that 
this Dustin guy had edited the score in. So this guy from the forum was taunting Christopher an email saying, better hurry up and delete that post, Chris, so you don't have to pay Dustin. Don't worry, we're checking with Dustin to make sure you really paid him, blah, blah, blah. So then Christopher responded. He actually responded. to. He really doesn't respond, but he responded to this email saying, he's already been paid, motherfucker. Go ahead and ask him, deadbeat. Tell your fat-ass wife I said hi. I don't know where the fat-ass wife part comes. I don't think Christopher knows this guy has a wife. I don't know if this guy is married. How's your dead-end 9-to-5 job going since you can't win at gambling like I do? LOL, you poor bastard. He loves to talk about people having 9-to-5 jobs in a derisive fashion. So then Dustin did post proof that he was paid. And he wrote, thank you, baby coming in May. This helps a ton. Best of luck to you and your gambling, sir. I think the baby story is probably BS. But I do believe he got paid. Anyway... After we figured out that Dustin had edited his post and that he had probably scammed Christopher, because it says edited there. I don't know how Christopher didn't catch that. Like it said edited, and then he wrote, that's a win, right? And then Christopher said, if Casey scored 25 and San Fran scored 22, that's a win, which is exactly what Dustin posted in that edited post. If you're the first person and only person to put that answer, then yes, you win. I'm at the casino right now. I got to look over all the answers. So Christopher just like, he just quickly looked over the answers and didn't bother to notice that uh, it's an edited there. He just missed it and paid the 1K. So anyway, after this was discovered and mocked on Poker Fraud Alert, which Christopher reads every single day, and also this person apparently emailed Christopher and mocked him about it. Not Dustin, but you know the person that had been emailing with him mocked him about getting scammed and tricked. So Christopher sent another email to this guy. And this is what he wrote back. LOL, I own your ugly fat ass and all you dead broke wannabe poker players who have nine to five jobs. See, he thinks that Poker Fraud Alert is all poker players. He doesn't realize a lot of people in that thread about him are just people who found Poker Fraud Alert by Googling him and don't even play poker. It just happens to be on Poker Fraud Alert. So he really thinks that Poker Fraud Alert is like all poker players who are against him. He doesn't realize it's just a wide variety of people. He went on to write, I've got so much money, $1,000 doesn't hurt me at all. But you and your dead broke poker friends need to scam to get a measly $1,000 so you guys can try to pay your bills. I'm happy to help you. Every post I make on social media sucks all your attention away from you living your own life. I am your life, biatch. LOL. And he put a laughing emoji. <laughs> what, what a tilt. He's really tilting there. You can tell he's furious that he got scammed out of 1000 So the scammer got scammed. Now, Christopher, if you're listening to this, I want to tell you something. I don't believe this is someone from this forum. It seems like Dustin was just like some random scammer who tricked you with the oldest trick in the book, and that is editing a post on Facebook in a contest after whatever you're predicting is over. (laughs) That's all he did. It wasn't someone from here. If it was someone from here, they probably would have taken credit. But it appears this Dustin guy is a real dude. I don't know him. I have no idea who he is. And he's not part of my forum, for what I can tell. And this is nothing we planned. It's funny, but we didn't do it. We're just laughing at it. We're laughing that you were that stupid. So, you can think it was one of us, quote, broke poker players, but it wasn't. 
And by the way, in case you're wondering who's on Poker Fraud Alert and what comprises this site as far as the forum's concerned and this radio show too, there's some poker players. There's some who are professional poker players. There are some recreational poker players. Truthfully, most of the people who browse the forum and who listen to the show are middle-aged professionals who are not anywhere near dead broke. There's a few people around who are broke, but most of them are not. Most of them are not dead broke wannabe poker players. Most of them are like middle-aged professionals who play poker recreationally. And then there's some poker pros in there like myself. And I know you look down on those who have a nine-to-five job, but first of all, if nobody had a job, then what would happen to the society? And second, there's nothing to be ashamed of having a job. A lot of people enjoy having a career and being productive and working in a specialty that they have become an expert at. And a lot of people are happy to have a steady income that they can count on and that they can budget and are not degenerate gamblers like you who then have to scam people to stay in action. See, you're not a professional gambler. That's the whole problem. You're a losing gambler who then scams people so you can keep gambling. So that's worse than even the person who's dead broke. At least the person who's dead broke isn't scamming. They're not hurting other people. They're just not doing that well themselves. But anyway, thank you for the acknowledgement that you're reading Poker Fraud Alert. I mean, we know you are. Like, it's been pretty obvious. <laughs> it's like people will post things on the forum to mock him, and then he'll respond in some way indirectly in his videos. Like, I hear some people saying this, and it's very clear who the some people are. I don't know if he listens to this show, but I know he reads the forum every day. He still has no YouTube. I had somebody ask me, when do you think he'll have a YouTube again? And I said, yeah, pretty soon, because he always lets some time pass between channels nowadays, because he learned that if you start up a channel right away after getting shut down, that YouTube kills it pretty quickly. But if you take some time, then you can sometimes make the channel survive a while. So I think that's his plan here. I think his plan is to wait a certain amount of time. And I think we're starting to get close to the time he wants to wait. And then he's going to start up another channel. In fact, maybe he's already started up another channel and just not making it public yet and just kind of building it up. But I'll let you know, Christopher, we're ready for this. I think it'll be a lot faster to terminate it this time. I can't promise this because YouTube is not the easiest to get a hold of and they behave in strange and mysterious ways at times. But I think we can duplicate what was done last time in a much more expedient fashion. But we will see when you start your next channel, which we know will happen. And again, at any time, if I'm wrong about this, if we're wrong about this, you can meet up with me or a representative of mine in Vegas who will take you to a certain number that will agree upon of casinos of their choice and get your win-loss statement and add it all up. And if it shows that you're a winning gambler over the last four years with all these casinos combined, then I will take the thread down and post an apology. But you won't do that because we know the truth. It is funny, though. It is funny that he got scammed by a small-time scammer. (laughs) There was some debate on the forum whether we should be happy about that. 
some people are saying, well, maybe you shouldn't praise another scammer. And I said, well, I'm not saying this scammer is a hero because, you know, he's still a scammer. But I'd still rather he have the money than Christopher because Christopher shouldn't have the money either. The 1K that got scammed was money that Christopher got from scamming somebody else. So I'd rather see it in the hands of an occasional small-time scammer than a career scammer. Ideally, it would go back to one of the victims, but that doesn't look like is what happened here. Looks like one scammer got another. Hope you enjoyed the bonus topic. Let's move on to talk about the Phil Helmuth, Daniel Negranu, Ike Haxton Twitter flap. Since the last show, there have been some high-profile players arguing with one another. And some people have been frustrated seeing this because they say it makes poker look bad. That it's a bad look when recreational players see all this stuff. But you know what? There's always some kind of drama on poker Twitter. So I don't think so. I don't think it really matters. It's just kind of drama. And, you know, that's just par for the course in this community. This one involves, as I said, Phil Helmuth, Daniel Negreanu, and Ike Haxton. Mainly Phil and Ike. And this has to do with Ike wearing a mask all the time when he plays these tournaments. Ike Haxton has been a very successful tournament player in recent years. He's always done well, but he's done especially well in recent years. And I think starting about two years ago, maybe more than that, but at least two years, he's been wearing a big N95 mask at every event that he plays the entire time, even in the winner's photos. And I gave him a bit of a hard time about that because... It's one thing to say, I'm going to wear a mask when I'm playing because I'm there a long time. We're indoors and there's a lot of different viruses you can catch, not even just COVID. There's uh, flus, there's colds, and wearing a mask does help against the flus and the colds. So with COVID, the N95 helps. Uh, Non-N95 doesn't do very much good, but he does wear an N95. So the truth is an N95, while uncomfortable and big... It does protect you against COVID, the flu, colds, any kind of these viruses you're going to pick up in a poker tournament setting. So you can say, okay, well, that's his choice. It may look ridiculous, but that's his choice. He just doesn't want to get sick. And maybe he's even doing it because he doesn't want to get sick in the middle of a tournament where he's running deep and then have to play sick. He's putting a lot of money into these things. These are very high roller events, a lot of things that he's playing. So... You might say it would make sense for him to wear a mask as long as it's not too uncomfortable for him. And everybody has their various tolerances for these masks. I do not like wearing them. I find masks very uncomfortable. I find N95s especially uncomfortable. I couldn't play poker that way. I wouldn't play poker that way. But some people, they don't have a problem with it. They get used to it. They can do it. So if Ike is one of those people who's willing to put up with the discomfort, then who are we to question that? However, when you get into the winner's photo and you wear this big mask covering your face, that's starting to make it look like this is all a show, or maybe at least partly a show. Maybe he really is wearing it for health reasons, just not to get sick, but he's also wearing it to troll people. Because as you know, the whole mask thing has been very controversial 
since masks were starting to be mandated about four years ago because of COVID. And you have a lot of people on the right who have been anti-mask the whole way. And you have people on the left who have been very pro-mask and some who are obsessed with masking. And in fact, Haxton seems to be one of them. And Haxton is very left-wing politically and doesn't hide that. So in one of the winner's photos, he actually bragged about the fact that he likes trolling MAGA, that's Make America Great Again, the Trump supporters, that he likes trolling them by wearing this mask. He loves the freaking out they do when he takes a winner's photo with a mask on, that he expects it, that he enjoys it, that they give him this type of response. He actually said that. These weren't his exact words, but that's basically what he said. So that's when I really started to become convinced, though I was already suspecting, that some of this is just a social statement. That he's not just wearing the mask because he really, really doesn't want to get sick. He's wearing the mask partially because he's been brainwashed that this is what you need to do. And partially because he enjoys trolling those on the right. Because if it was just about health, he would take it off for the winner's photo. Because it's an ugly thing. This big N95 on your face. That's, it's not a nice thing to have in a winner's photo. And Ike is a smart guy. We don't agree politically. And, you know, we don't care for each other that much. I don't hate him, but we don't care for each other that much. But I will concede that he's a very good poker player. And I'll concede he's a smart guy. So I'm sure he is smart enough to know that catching COVID takes a certain amount of time of exposure when you're in a room. If someone coughs right on you or, or breathes right into your mouth or something, that's a different story. But I'm talking about if you're in a room where somebody's sick and they coughed or something else that got COVID hanging in the air somewhere in a poorly ventilated room. Yeah, you can catch COVID that way, and that's how a lot of people catch it, but you're not going to catch it in 30 seconds. You're just not going to get the proper viral, viral load to get you sick. And he knows that. He knows that taking it off for 30 seconds for a winner's photo, especially with almost everybody out of the room, because when you've won, guess what? Just about everybody's gone because they've lost already. They left the room. Yeah, you'll have some staff around there. You may have someone who just busted from playing you heads up. You may have a few people watching, but you're not going to have the massive number of people in the room that you do when the tournament is going normally. So once you've won, it's a pretty empty room. And anybody who's played a live tournament knows that. So he's sitting in a mostly empty room and taking off the mask for 30 seconds for a picture. That's what he would do if he were a normal person. But he's not acting like a normal person. He's acting like a fanatic who won't even take it off for the picture. And I even gave him a hard time for that a while back on Twitter. And I said, this just doesn't make sense. And I had people attacking me for it. Because if you dare criticize his mask, you get people on the left jumping on you and not liking that you're questioning his masking. And I kept trying to clear up to these people that I'm not criticizing the masking itself. I'm criticizing the leaving it on in the picture. And that it's a dumb reason to be wearing a mask in a winner's picture is to try to troll your political opponents. And it's just so stupid. And he wasn't even totally admitting that's why. He said that he likes these pictures being posted with the mask on because it gets them mad, but he didn't say specifically that's why he's wearing it. Just like he likes their reaction. He likes how it's getting them mad. But that is why he's doing it. So the fact that he won't take it off for the winner's photo shows this is somewhat ideological and a way to troll those that he doesn't like politically. But that's not what all this is about. I'm just giving you a background here. That he's always got the mask on. And that every single winner's photo of him in the last two years shows him wearing a mask. 
And he's enjoying the reaction to it. He's enjoying the negativity. He's enjoying how it's getting right-wingers angry. Now, it's one thing if he really thinks it's important to wear the mask and right-wingers are getting angry and he doesn't care because he doesn't like them. But that's not what he's doing here. He's leaving it out even in winner's photos and, and taking crappy winner's photos instead of just his full face, which you think he'd want in winner's photos. He's doing that because he wants to piss them off. And that's just childish. I mean, the guy's almost 40 years old. It's childish. Anyway, the current controversy is about something a little bit different, but it's related to the mask. Phil Helmuth said that he doesn't think that Ike Haxton should wear a mask during these live events, because they're playing high-stakes events here. So he thinks it's unfair that it conceals potential tells. So this is what Phil said during an interview that started a whole shitstorm. Should poker players be allowed to wear masks at the table? That's just a tactic and a strategy. That's not good for poker. Phil Helmuth called out Ike Haxton and his use of a mask in a recent interview with Poker Org. He's one of the best in the world right now, but he has to take that white mask off. He's using it to give himself an advantage. Helmuth admitted that he himself had benefited from using a mask, but it was bad for poker. When there's six people left in a tournament, you, you don't really have any real concerns for COVID. Phil stated that wearing a mask is way more beneficial for covering up poker tells than anything else. There are people that are just tell boxes. And maybe Ike Haxton is a tell box. What do you guys think? Should poker players be allowed to wear... Okay, so that was the little clips out of his poker org interview. That was the highlights from it. Phil then included these highlights in a tweet and wrote, No one, in all caps, should be able to cover their face unless you use your own hands to do it. This isn't online poker. Quote, tells matter in live poker. It is a skill to hide your tells and another skill to read your opponent's tells. Hashtag positivity. Well, come on, Phil. You can't put positivity on everything. That was This was negative. This was not positive. Then Negranu, who, by the way, is friends with Helmuth, but Negranu jumped in and said, for what it's worth, the only time I've seen Ike take off his mask is to smoke cigarettes outside the studio. Just because a guy smokes cigarettes and doesn't go to the gym doesn't mean he doesn't care about his health. So, of course, that's sarcastic. Well, I pushed back on that one. He wrote back to Negranu, you're just fucking lying, LOL. You absolutely have not seen me smoking cigarettes outside the studio. Referring to, I guess, Poker Go. Daniel said, huh? I don't care if you do, but I'm quite certain I even said something to you in a joking matter about it as I walked by. Are you saying you don't smoke now or just not right outside the studio? So Ike said, I've been playing poker with a mask on for the last two years. I've probably smoked five cigarettes in that time, and none of them were in the vicinity of a poker tournament. So this kind of sounds like Ike saying, yeah, you may have seen me smoking, but it was more than two years ago. <laughs> so, I don't know why he's saying he's lying. I mean, it was more than two years ago, but that's not that long ago. Negrano said, again, I don't care. I was just making light of it, but I have a vivid memory of seeing you smoke on a break post-COVID and thinking that was peculiar. I must have caught one of the five, unless my memory's playing tricks on me. I definitely saw this. So then Ike Haxton said, I was vaping for a bit, although I've stopped that now too. I remember you had a smart-ass comment about it once. So that's probably what you're thinking of. Ah, so this did happen. But yeah, carry on lightheartedly making shit up to insinuate I have some ulterior motive besides health for masking. Let me stop right there. There is some belief by opponents of Ike's, not poker opponents, but like Twitter opponents who don't like him. There's some belief that he is doing this to get an edge, that he really doesn't care about his health, that he's not worried about getting sick that he's not even trying to troll MAGA, that really what he's doing is pretending to be a health fanatic about the masking 
to cover his face and conceal tells to give him a little bit more of an edge in these high-stakes tournaments. And I have a lot of people who are insisting to me, both publicly and privately, that that's what he's doing. And even though I'm no Ike Haxton fan, as he'll tell you himself, I got to defend him on this one. I don't think that's what's going on, because Ike Haxton seems to be an honest guy. He doesn't seem to be an angle shooter or anything like that. And while I'm sure he doesn't mind that he does get this advantage in concealing his face when wearing that mask, I still don't think that's the reason he's doing it. I don't think this is a conspiracy to pretend he cares about not getting sick when in reality this is just to cover his face. I just don't believe that from his personality. I could see other players doing this, but he just doesn't seem to be the type of guy who does this. He's someone who I don't agree with, who I think is kind of a douche sometimes, and I think he's very sanctimonious. There's a lot of stuff I think about him that isn't all that great, but I do think he's an honest guy. I think he's an intelligent guy. I think he's a good poker player, and I think he's an honest guy. So I don't think he's doing this actually to angle, but I think he is getting a benefit from this And I think he realizes that and doesn't mind the benefit, and he's not trying to negate the benefit in any way, but he does really wear the mask because he wants to. This is just a fringe benefit of it. Anyway, Negroni responded back, dude, it's just funny and ironic. I've never taken issue with you wearing a mask, nor have I questioned your motives not once. I didn't make anything up. I just see you inhale smoke outside the studio. If it was a vape and not not cigarettes, I stand corrected. The irony is the funny part. Man takes a vigil- vigilante precautions to protect his lungs while simultaneously inhaling smoke. That's all. Just a joke. I have no ulterior motive. I thought you might actually find it funny, too. Sorry I was wrong. Well, he's not going to find it funny. Ike has, like, no sense of humor about these things. So, to be fair, I don't think Negrani was totally joking. I think he was kind of supporting his friend Phil and posting how Ike was a hypocrite. So, this wasn't a complete joke. So, okay. I'll give Ike that, but Ike wasn't totally, like, straightforward in this whole thing. Oh, you're lying if you saw me smoking right at the studio. Well, okay, maybe you've seen me vaping, but I wasn't smoking, and <laughs> I've stopped that now, too. So, yeah. I think he just brainwashed Ike. I think he got brainwashed by the left, that you need to wear a mask all the time, that the N95 mask is the best to wear, and he's doing it. He is correct that the poker environment is very conducive to catching COVID. I caught COVID at the World Series of Poker in 2022. I've only had COVID once, and it was in 2022 at the World Series of Poker. So yes, that's a very common place to catch COVID. It's a very common place to catch colds and flus. So it's understandable why someone would want to wear a mask to prevent that, but an N95 is just so big and hard to breathe through. It's just not a pleasant thing to wear for all those hours. And the point is, Ike is 38 years old. I don't know of any kind of major health problem he has or immune deficiency problem to where he would be one having to wear it at this age. And COVID is not killing 38-year-olds anymore. It's not. Maybe those who have a major health problem that it can contribute to their death. But if you're just a normal 38-year-old, COVID's just not going to kill you. This is not the same COVID as in 2020, as in 2021. And Ike is informed on these things. Ike knows these things. In fact, someone even talked about, oh, you know, the poker chips, you know, they pick up germs all the time. So how are you protecting yourself from that if you're really trying to stop COVID? And he's like, are you kidding me? Have you looked how COVID transmits? So he knows that like, he's right about that part. COVID transmits through the air. It doesn't transmit on surfaces like the cold virus does, like the influenza virus does. COVID doesn't do that. So Ike's right about that part. But it also shows that Ike is aware of these things, that Ike does keep up 
on news about COVID, about the dangers of COVID, about how you catch COVID. And I'm sure he knows that 38-year-olds without major health problems are not dying or suffering any kind of major health issue as a result of catching COVID. So if you're 38, you catch COVID these days, you're sick for some time, and you get better, just like the flu. It's just like the flu for people who are around that age now. It's not the same COVID as in 2020 and 2021. It's much milder. It's much less dangerous, especially to middle-aged and younger people. So I, who was once very concerned about catching COVID, especially before there was a vaccine for it, I'm not worried anymore. I don't want to get it, but I'm not worried anymore. I don't wear a mask anywhere. I don't avoid anywhere because of COVID. I go, okay, well, I hope I don't get it, but if I get it, I get it. That's, that's my attitude now because it's not going to kill me anymore. In 2020 and 2021, it could have killed me. Not anymore. So no issue now. And Ike's younger than me. Ike is uh, like 14 years younger than me. So what's he worried about? But I think this is all being part of like a masking cult of the far left. And then he gets the additional benefits of one, not getting sick as much. And two, being able to troll the right by wearing the thing. That's why he's doing it. And then he gets the final benefit of, yeah, it's going to conceal some tells. I don't think that's why he's doing it, but I'm sure he doesn't mind that he's getting that benefit. I think that's the truth. I think that's what's really going on here. I don't think it's intentional to get tells and to pretend he cares about his health, but I think that this is just a fanaticism. It's a fanaticism, and it's an immature form of trolling of people he doesn't agree with politically. And it's stupid to do that. It's stupid to do things just intentionally to anger people who don't agree with you politically. It really is. It's one thing to make some kind of sarcastic remark or share something about a political figure on the other side that you want to laugh at. I mean, everybody does that. But I mean, actually doing something in your own personal life just for the purpose of trolling people on the other political side, that's just really dumb, especially when you're not a political figure. If he were like a political influencer, then I would understand. If he had like a political YouTube show or something and he did something performative like that, okay, you know, that's part of his job, but not a poker player. What's he doing? Will Jaffe, who's also on the left, of course, you know which side he took on this one, but I'll play you his tough convo towards Daniel Negreanu on this whole matter. What's up, guys? Um, it's been a minute, but uh, it's time. It's time to have a tough one with two of the greatest, most successful, most famous poker players of all time. Phil Hellmuth and Daniel Negreanu. Look, I don't know if there are two players that have done more to grow poker, increase its popularity. I don't know if there are two more famous poker players in the world than you guys, maybe Phil Ivey, Doyle. But recently, both you guys came after Ike for wearing a mask. Phil, you said he's clearly doing it to gain an edge. Um, and Daniel, you called him out for only taking it off to smoke cigarettes and never going to the gym. Uh, I mean, it's pretty obvious what's going on here, guys. Like, you guys have both, for a long time in poker, been seen as two of the best players in the game. Maybe not necessarily always by people within poker, but always by the outside public. You talk about great poker players, Phil Helmuth, Daniel Negreanu. And you guys are both extremely successful, hardworking, and you both have massive egos. And the truth is, is you guys ain't the best anymore. Like, I'm sorry, Phil, but you're not even fucking close, man. 
like, like, I mean, if you are, you know, one of the best tournament players in the world, there are big buy-ins running every day of the year. You can play them. You can go to Triton. You can play 100Ks. You can play 200Ks. You know, you're just, you're not even remotely close to the level of these guys. And if you were, something tells me you'd be out there winning tournaments. Daniel, I mean, you have done an incredible job. Like, absolutely phenomenal job you have i don't know how you've stayed it's a testament to your work ethic to your natural ability your hand reading skills the fact that you've been able to have the type of scores in these type of fields over the past few years i can't give you enough respect and you deserve to be certainly in the conversation with these guys as long as you keep doing this but i mean let's be honest you guys are sick and tired of ike and guys like him winning all the money no False. False. That's not what's happening here. That's not what's happening. This is not jealousy. He's setting this whole thing up to, you're jealous. That's not true. This is not jealousy. I'll tell you what it is. Number one, they just kind of think he's a douche to do this. And they just don't like the look of it. They think it's obnoxious. They think he's a fanatic. They think he's trolling people by doing it. And they think it's not fair. They really think it's not fair. In addition to just kind of being a douche to do it and him being a fanatic doing it, they think it's not fair at these big events for him to conceal half of his face. That's all. They're not jealous of him. There's no way that's the case. Phil is still the all-time leader in bracelets. He's still winning bracelets, as you see. It's not like he won all of these prior to 2008 or something, and now he's not winning anymore. He keeps adding to it. Nobody's close to him. And Negreanu, as you said is getting these big scores in very tough fields. So what do they have to be jealous of? They're more famous still than Ike Haxton is. And they still get plenty of sponsorship money, still plenty of public accolades for both of them. This is not a jealousy. And in fact, I haven't really seen either of them ever acting out of jealousy in all their time in poker. And I've called out a lot of bad behavior on the part of Helmuth including at tables I've been at. In fact, I've called him out at the table. I've told stories on this show where I've confronted Helmuth at the table when he doesn't treat people well, even if it's not me. But I haven't seen where he's jealous. I haven't seen where he's done something out of jealousy of somebody else having success. I've never seen him do that. He's very self-centered, but he is not a jealous guy. He's just a guy who always thinks of himself. There's a difference. Negreanu, I've never seen him be jealous in that way. I've never seen him attack other poker players for fear that they're perceived as better than him. I've never seen him do that either. So this is just not true. This is just Will Jaffe making it up so he can try to place upon them an evil motive, a self-serving motive that isn't justifiable, that rather than them having a, a decent point here or having concern about fairness or just thinking he looks like an idiot doing this, that it's just they're jealous of his success lately, that they think they can't keep up with him. It's just not true. There's no evidence that all this is true. Being better than you. And that's what this is about. It's not about Ike's health. Does anybody even consider that maybe he has some health issues? That <laughs> Maybe that's why he's wearing the mask? Like, is that even a remote possibility? No, because we've never seen any evidence of that either. First of all, Prior to COVID, and in fact, even prior to two years ago, which is 
when Omicron was already here, when the bad COVID was there, he wasn't wearing it yet. That's the funny thing. He said he started two years ago. I didn't watch when, but I'll take his word for it that it started two years ago. So he's been around for a long time. So if he really had some kind of immunodeficiency, it's not just COVID he has to worry about. And yet we haven't seen him in masks until 2022. And furthermore, he has never stated nor implied that he has a health problem. It's not like he said, well, I have a health problem, but I really don't want to discuss it in public, but that's the reason I'm doing it. Like Some people may say he's lying, but I'd actually take his word for it because, as I said, he's not a liar. I would believe him if he sincerely told everybody, hey, I have a health problem. I just prefer not to discuss it out here. I'd say, okay, we can't verify it, but let's give him the benefit of the doubt and take his word. But he's not even saying that. You know why? Because he doesn't have one. He doesn't have a health problem. This is all ideological. This is also trolling. And he doesn't mind the fringe benefit of also concealing poker tells. That's the truth here. Why are we assuming he has a health problem when even he has never said that? He's been under attack for this for a long time, and never once does he even imply that he has a health problem? That's because he doesn't have one, and he doesn't want to lie about it. That's why. He's just as healthy as any other 38-year-old. So again, Jaffe just making things up to fit the narrative. Or it's just for edge and, and you know, to block his cart the road rate or something. What did, I, what did I just say? He always ends kind of abruptly like that. How about something in between that? How about it's not just for Edge. He's just a fanatic, and he happens to get an Edge from doing it. It's a fringe benefit of it. How about that? Negreanu responded to this, saying, appreciate the convo, referring to the tough convo that Will Jaffe did. That's what he calls them. But just not true, I swear to you. It was a layup of a joke, and one I would expect you to take. If you saw a guy walking on a treadmill while eating cake and drinking a Big Gulp, you might giggle, No. That's truly all it was for me. Will Jaffe wrote back, it's not a bad joke, but just felt to me like you guys were both tilted that Ike's been winning so much. No, no. See, I, I'm kind of with you that it wasn't really a joke, that it kind of was hostile, but no, they're not tilted that he's winning so much. I guarantee they don't care how much Ike is winning. Like, I know Negranu and Bonomo go at it, but that's because they have major political differences and other issues with each other. And the truth is that Bonomo has attacked him personally a lot on Twitter over the years. But aside from Bonomo and now Ike Haxton, like of the other people who are winning a lot in these high stakes tournaments, does Negreanu ever attack them? He's not friends with all of them. So why doesn't he attack these other people who are doing well? Why, why only Ike Haxton? Come on. So Negreanu says, not in the least for me. I truly thought that he would also find the irony funny, but I got that part way wrong. If the joke was Helmuth says he can't eat a banana because too many crabs while eating a bowl of Sour Patch Kids, or too many carbs, not crabs, (laughs) we would all laugh. Irony is funny. I was going, what is crabs here? (laughs) Okay. Phil Helmuth then writes sarcastically, new rule, Daniel Negreanu, joking is no longer permitted, but I will continue to joke anyway. I'll be making fun of myself and others. Hashtag positivity. Phil Helmuth then wrote another tweet. This was on February 7th. This whole thing was brought up originally on uh, February 6th. This all happened pretty fast. All this stuff was going back and forth within two days. Phil wrote, I was told by Justin Bonomo on Twitter that I has a golden record forever. Justin implied that Ike has always won at the same rate he has over the last two years. 
Daniel Negreanu laughed at this assertion and said, Justin is wrong. Ike has had the best two years of his life in tournaments with a mask on. Look it up. It's obvious. That's interesting. Let's not get it twisted. I think he's a great player, one of the best. This is about Ike covering his face with a mask during competition. To me, it's not in the spirit of No Limit Hold'em. To me, it's horrible for ratings. To me, it gives Ike a big edge, but bad for poker, great for Ike. Many top, top players agree and have texted me on the side to thank me for fighting for this thankless fight to have face coverings removed unless you have a medical condition. I have avoided social media fights, but I will fight for what I believe to be right. Hashtag positivity. And then he posted a, a picture of Ike, like four pictures, a montage of him with masks on in the winner's photos, which is kind of funny. So I said back, I don't think he's doing it to gain an edge. I think he's just mask obsessed, both with an irrational COVID fear and a desire to, quote, trigger MAGA by, we- by wearing it in winner's photos. Unfortunately, this also gives him an edge during play. That huge mask covers most of his face. Most of the people in the responses were more on Ike's side than Helmuth's, but not by a whole lot. So there were a fair number of people who agreed with Helmuth, including me. Now, some people brought up that masks were worn, especially by Asian people, in card rooms before COVID, and that masks only started being worn by American-born people after COVID, that it's been something that's been done and accepted until all the mask controversy that came from COVID. Well, that's a bit of a different story. The masks that people were wearing before were surgical masks, and those are smaller. They don't cover that much of your face. The problem with an N95 is it's so large that it's covering enough of your face to really the entire bottom half of your face can't be seen. So any tell that would come from any movement in the bottom half of your face is just not seen. And that's a problem, whereas a surgical mask really covers your mouth and your nose and not much more. So they're just so big that it's a different matter. I don't know if the giant N95 masks that Ike is wearing would have been against the rules five years ago, but if they weren't, they should have been. And the truth is that playing in a casino environment always has carried some risks, especially catching viruses. So if you can't handle that, don't play. Facial tells have always been considered to be part of poker, especially at the higher limits. In fact, many people believe that poker is mostly facial tells. That's why there's expressions like poker face. In fact, Lady Gaga did a whole song called Poker Face. It's not really about poker, but it's using that expression. A poker face is referring to keeping your face so emotionless to where people cannot get any reads on how good your hand is. So to deny that tells are important or that they exist is just being naive or just not being honest. Now, it is true that tells are not the largest or anywhere near the largest factor in how you play hands. You typically play your hands based upon, number one, what you have. Number two, what you think your opponent has from both the way they played previous hands and the way they've played this hand so far. And also by the board texture. And you kind of add all these data points together in your mind and come up with whether or not you believe that what they're representing to have is really what they have. And the tells are not a big part of it. However, tells do matter. And there have been times when I've played, including in some very crucial spots, where people have given off tells, and I've used them, and I've been right. The one I remember most, I don't want to make this about me or go too much on a tangent here, especially since it's a very long show, but the one I remember most was at the 2010 main event with like 91 people left. 
So obviously a very important spot for me. I had below average chips, but I wasn't so short stacked that I had to go in with any playable hand or even any good hand. So I did have the ability to fold. I raised under the gun with queens and then a guy flatted to my left who was an aggressive young guy that I figured would have three bet me with kings or aces. So I knew I had him beat. And then it folded to the button who was a youngish guy from Europe who looked very unhappy. And I could see that in his face. I was looking at him as he was deciding what to do. He looked so unhappy and it didn't look like an act. And in fact, I had gotten another tell off of him before and doubled up off of him. So I I guess I had like about half of average. I wasn't that short stacked. I definitely wasn't healthily stacked. As I said, like half of average. But I could have folded these queens if I thought that I was in trouble here. Well, he goes all in and he has just a tiny bit less than me in chips. So I'll be crippled if I lose. And I'm pretty much done if I lose, even though I'm not technically knocked out yet. So it comes back to me. I'm not worried about the guy who just flatted. But the question to me at that point, of course, is does he have kings or aces? Well, I could tell from the way he was behaving, from the look on his face, that he did not have kings or aces. What I was getting from his reaction was he has a good hand, too good to want to fold here, but then he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't feel all that comfortable pushing me all in, and he doesn't want to fold it, and he doesn't just want to flat it either because of the stack sizes. It'll be hard to play. So he looks so unhappy. This is like a tough spot for him, and he puts it all in. So I go, well, that couldn't be kings. Couldn't be aces. Maybe it's the other queens, but whatever. If he has the other queens, then we chop, uh, You know, barring a weird flush thing that comes up. I'm not worried about the other guy. I think he's going to fold. So if I can eliminate kings and aces, I could very strongly eliminate kings and aces from what he had. Should I call here? And the answer was, of course, because he could have jacks or tens. So yes, he could have ace-king, which I won't be thrilled to see because then it's a race. I'm still a favorite, but you know, I'd rather not gamble yet at that point. I'm not desperate enough to gamble. But if I can guarantee that the queens are going to be the best or tied for the best hand, or almost guarantee, and that at worst it's racing, how can I fold here? When the upside is, I'll double up if I win, and I'll be at average, and who knows what happens from there? You know, average with 90 people left. That's what I'd be. Huge spot there. So I said, I can't fold this. So I called. As I expected, the other guy who flatted said he had ace-10 suited and folded, and then the guy who went all in turned over ace-king suited. There you go. Now, that's not what I wanted to see. I was hoping it was going to be jacks, but it was ace-king suited. At least an ace was out from the guy who folded the ace-10, and then ace on the flop. And I did not improve. I was crippled, and I ended up busting a short time later. Only good thing that happened is we crossed the 90 line. I finished 88th and got some extra money from the money bump, which actually was like, I think, 8K more. So that was nice. Anyway, yes, had I folded, I would have been better off because I wouldn't have lost the hand. But, you know, in theory, I did the right thing because I deduced strictly from tells that he did not have kings or aces. And if he had a big mask on, I would not have been able to do that. Now you can say, well, this is just some guy from Europe and not someone at Ikexon's level, and I'll agree. But that doesn't mean Ikexon never gives off any tells. 
And in fact, one could argue that maybe tells are more important at a high level because there are fewer fundamental errors at the high levels of play. So you have to look at any little thing that might tip you off. So I just think that if you're going to enter the realm of high stakes tournament poker, that you have to take the risk that you might catch COVID or some other virus and take off the masks, unless you're really, really vulnerable to getting very ill and you can prove it. Not just some flimsy doctor's note saying, I recommend Ike Hexton wear a mask. Something that really justifies why he would need a mask at age 38. Anyone could successfully prove this to a tournament director who would actually have to review the records and see that it really seems like he's someone who is in need of that mask, in true need, not just it would be nice to have, but in true need of it, which should be very rare. And of course, would it involve someone having to lie if they don't really have that case? And I don't think Ike would do that. Then they should not wear a mask like that. Some people said, well, if you're going to eliminate that, then why can people wear sunglasses, huh? And why can they wear hoodies? And why can they cover their face with their hands? And they posted a picture of Phil covering his face with his hands. Well, you can't go too overboard. Sunglasses have been part of poker for a very long time. The hoodies, I agree, should be done away with. Because that, again, starts to cover a lot of your face. Remember Christoph Vogelsang, who's covering his entire face with a hoodie, and they finally told him in some venues he can't do that anymore? So I would be just as happy to see them banning the hoodies also, that you can wear one, but you can't put the hood over your head. You got a hoodie behind you, but you can't put the hood over your head. I'd be totally cool with that. Sunglasses, let people wear the damn sunglasses. People want to put their hands on their face. How are you going to prevent that? That's not the same thing as a mask that just is constantly covering the bottom half of your face. It's not the same. So I think we just need to wind the clock back and see what was acceptable five years ago, before COVID, and go back to that. That should be it. Anybody who's intentionally covering a lot of their face should not be allowed to do so. Not with a hoodie, not with an N95 mask, none of that. Unless for the mask, that they have a medical need, which is extreme. Because remember, poker venues are not for everyone. As I said, entering a casino, playing in a casino for all those hours is a risk. Think of actors. Think of actors who were part of productions during COVID. At first, it all shut down, but then it reopened. And they had COVID protocols and testing, but that only goes so far. But were these actors wearing masks while they were on film? Did you see them in the shows wearing masks? No. Why? Even during Delta, the most damaging variant, the most dangerous variant, how come these actors didn't have masks on? Well, because it would have ruined the TV show or the movie they were in. It would have not made sense in the context of the movie or the TV show. And in fact, they didn't want to remind people of COVID and having to wear masks and have to watch people on screen wearing masks. You just want to escape to a movie or a TV show and not see all that crap. So these actors had to not wear a mask while they were acting. Yes, it was maybe a risk. I don't believe those masks really did very much because you know those cloth masks were really useless. But even if they did do something, they had to have them off because that was a part of the job. And if they said, well... I do not want to have a mask off at any time while I'm working, 
then what the producers would have said is, okay, well, you're out of your contract then. We'll hire somebody else who will. And there's plenty of people who would take that job in Hollywood. And they were being paid a fortune to do it, so they took the risk. That's the bottom line. Same with athletes who played at that time. They were not wearing masks. It's just one of these things. If you're partaking in an activity where masking would not be appropriate, then you have to choose whether to do it or not do it. And just like these actors and these athletes who are playing for or acting for a lot of money, Ike is playing for a lot of money. So he can take off the mask or he can just not play or he can just stick to online events. I don't mind so much if he wears that mask at a $1,500 event. Because that's different. You know, it's such a huge field. The overall gain he's going to get from that mask is not very much. And the truth is, most of his decisions will not have to do with any kind of tell that he would have given off. Like, I'm not talking about other people's tells. I'm saying his tells. I don't think the typical player at a 1500 event is going to get a lot of tells from Ike. So that probably wouldn't matter. I wouldn't have a problem with that. But at these high-stakes events where every little thing matters, when every small edge is a big deal, he shouldn't have that on. By the way, at the 2021 main event, the only event I played in the 2021 World Series, this is in November, there was not a masking requirement. In fact, had there been one, I would not have gone. But a lot of people were wearing masks. Some were, some weren't. And I thought about that, and I said, you know what? This isn't fair to me, because I don't want to wear a mask. I find it uncomfortable. I can't sit there all day in a mask. But at the same time, I hate the fact that I'm going to be giving off tells, possibly, and that my opponents who are wearing a mask, whether it's to cover tells or because they're afraid of catching COVID, whichever one it is, they're going to have their tells somewhat blocked from me. So that's not fair to me. So how do I deal with this? So I came up with a solution. I brought the mask... I left it next to me, and whenever I was in a hand, I'd put the mask on. So I had this routine. If I'm going to enter the hand pre-flop, whether it's me opening or me calling or re-raising, before I touch the chips, I put the mask on, and then I put out the chips. And people started laughing about the table. They're going, oh, here comes the mask. Here comes the (laughs) re-raise. And I didn't hide it. I didn't try to pretend like this is for health reasons. I didn't give them any bullshit. I told them honestly. I said... Yeah, I'm putting this on because some people at the table have it on and I want it all to be even. I'd prefer everybody has it off, but some people have it on so and I don't find it comfortable. So when I'm in a hand, I just want to make sure that people at the table don't have an edge on me. It's just not fair. And people understood that nobody argued with me. They kind of laughed that every time I put the mask on and then take it right back off at the end of the hand. But I told them why. Because I didn't want to give others at the main event an edge over me because they're wearing a damn mask. So I had my mask on during the hands, and I took it off when I wasn't in the hands. But if it were my choice, nobody would have a damn mask on. Now, in 2022, hardly anyone was wearing a mask, so I didn't bring that mask. I didn't bring any mask. And if you know one guy at the table happens to have one on, fine. I just didn't like seeing like you know, 40% of the table wearing masks. That was more of a problem. That's why I brought my mask. And by the way, anyone who didn't bring a mask could have easily bought one there at the World Series on the fly and done the same thing. So anyone who wanted to do what I was doing could have done it as well. Now, what about that argument for Ike? Why not just say, well, Phil, you could wear a mask. Well, as I said before, the N95 mask is so uncomfortable. So this isn't just a trivial thing to wear all day. So this is just something that 
Ike shouldn't be wearing. And if it's really that big of a deal, just don't play. Go do something else, Ike. You're playing for a lot of money. You can afford to leave off that mask. And I don't believe you have any kind of health issue that makes you have to wear it. In fact, you've never even said that. Well, Phil posted a little bit of an update on this. This was February 15th. He has somewhat moderated on this, probably because he got some hassle from people for taking this stance on the whole thing. Here's what he had to say on February 15th. All right, here we go. Now, the reason it sounded garbled is because he had a mask on to begin this, I guess, symbolically. All right, here we go. And then pulls it off, and now he has no mask on. Anyone that wants to wear a mask at the poker table should be able to wear a mask. At the World Series of Poker, I'm going to wear a mask on the first day and take a video of it and send it out supporting people that want to wear masks. Listen, I was just calling out what I believe to be a bit of a mask abuse thing. It definitely gives an edge to players. And so I would propose that we have every final table, no one is allowed to wear a mask at any final table. If you want the other players tested, fine. Okay, I don't really like that. The final table idea isn't that bad. It's kind of like a compromise. Say, okay, we'll let Ike Haxton wear his stupid mask, except at the final tables. So once he gets there, he's got to take it off. But I think, number one, like, what's Phil doing here? Saying he's going to wear a mask on day one is why, Phil? You don't ever wear it, so why are you wearing it now? Just to show solidarity? Like, you know, I'll show people can wear masks if they want. I think he got battered too much by the Twitter mob. And now he wants to show that he supports people's choices to wear masks. Look, I never hold it against anyone who wants to wear a mask in public. I know there's right-wingers who do. I know there's fellow Republicans of mine who mock those and, in fact, will sometimes uh, say something to those who are wearing masks in public, like at the grocery store or at restaurants or like at the post office. I don't care about that. Wear your mask all you want out. I may think, like, why are you doing it? What's the point here? But I'm not going to ever deride you for it. And I'm not even going to really think much about it. It's a personal choice. You want to wear a mask? Go ahead and wear a mask. But when it affects the competition, when it affects your tells that I might be able to get from you, that's where it is not fair. At the grocery store, it doesn't matter. But this is where it's not fair. So this is not an ideological belief against masking or a hatred of masking. I just don't think it's fair. I think if you're going to go play live poker, leave the damn mask off, or at least make this a rule for events of a certain buy-in or higher, where I think it matters more, like 10K or higher. I'd be fine with that, too. But, Phil, you don't have to show solidarity with those wearing masks to pacify those that got angry at you for this. Let people be angry. Who cares? Since when has Phil Helmuth cared about making people angry? I mean... Look at how he acts at the tables. I thought the whole point is he just does what he wants and (laughs) acts the way he wants and people find it fascinating and love him for it anyway. I thought that was the whole Phil Helmuth vibe. I didn't know we're going to get like the pandering Phil Helmuth who's wearing a mask on a day one just to show that people can. What the hell? So you can be against Ike wearing that mask without being against masking. You could just be against masking at tournaments. I would really just like to see that nobody can wear a mask or a mask more than a surgical mask. You can even say you can wear a mask up to this size and that's it. But some form of where you can't cover half your face unless you have an extreme medical need for it. 
That's it. It's very simple. Not surprisingly, we saw like the people that came down on the side of Ike were mostly on the political left, and the people that came out against Ike were mostly on the political right. And I think on both sides, some people were missing the point. Some of the right-wingers were just generally hating masks and wanting to mock Ike for that. And then people on the left, the second they hear any opposition to someone wearing a mask, they just have like mask PTSD or something and freak out and automatically support the guy who's being bothered for wearing a mask. They think this is about mask freedom or being able to wear a mask in peace when this is about competitive fairness and they're not getting it. I mean, that's Will Jaffe was doing there. Will Jaffe just inventing things off the top of his head as to what the reason is that Helmuth is complaining about this. Oh, you're jealous that Ike's doing well. You think maybe people think he's better than you. Oh, you know, maybe Ike has a health reason for it. It's just, you don't have to do this just because you're on the left. And just because you're on the right, you don't have to automatically attack Ike for it. Just think about it logically. And logically, this just isn't fair. Even if that's not what Ike is intending, which I actually don't think that's what he's intending, but it's still not fair. Like when I wore that mask at the 21 World Series, I did it to counter those who were wearing it for health reasons. I assume most of them were wearing it not because they needed it, because they thought they had to wear it for health reasons. They thought if they didn't wear it, they'd get COVID because the media told them that. So I didn't think, hey, look at these angle shooters wearing a mask so they don't give away tells. Now, maybe some of them were. I didn't know who these people were. So maybe some of them thought this is a clever way to conceal tells. I don't know. But that wasn't what I assumed. I assumed the best of these people and assumed they were doing it because they really thought they had to do this to prevent COVID. But either way, they're concealing tells, no matter what the motivation is. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to conceal my tells too. (laughs) I'll wear the mask during hands and take it back off. And once mask wearing became uncommon, then I stopped doing that. So I did it for one and only one event in the World Series. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number to call. Or you can text. We've gotten some texts here. From the 507, Druff, aren't winning sports gamblers usually only hitting 53 to 54% of their bets? Well, yes, for those that mainly bet spreads and totals, that is true. For money line bettors, they will sometimes need a much higher or sometimes lower percentage depending upon whether they bet favorites or underdogs. But yes, for the typical spread or total bet, yeah, the winning sports bettors are just hitting a little bit above that, you know, maybe winning, yeah, 53, 54% of their games. And if you're hitting something like 55, 56, 57, you're considered very good. So if you have a handicapper that claims that they're hitting 70% of their spread or totals bets long-term, they're lying to you. Nobody can do that. From the 559, if you Google, quote, deli meat Todd, then Todd Brunson is your winner. So that's true. Todd Poker goes to me. Deli meat Todd goes to Todd Brunson. From the 464, never gotten a text from this person before, who is instructing me how to run this show. He wrote, number one, get show ready. Number two, set free roll. Number three, announce showtime. Number four, be on time. Anything less is disrespectful to people's time. Well, I have a solution for this. So listen to the archives. A lot of these shows do not record live. A lot of these shows just produce it 
where you cannot listen live, and then they edit it, and then they throw it up there. That's what a lot of them do. And most of our listenership is not live. So the truth is that the live show is just kind of a luxury. And I don't want to stop doing a live show because I like that we have a live show. I like that people can listen live if they want. That makes it more like a traditional radio show. I don't like the whole idea of recording it beforehand and then just putting it up there. But yeah, sometimes things happen. You know, I don't have a staff. I don't have anyone helping me in any way. And I have other things going on. So sometimes I can't do it. And this is not a monetized show. So these are all reasons that these things happen. I'm just being honest with you. I can understand where it's bothersome to wait for these things to start and then it doesn't start or the free roll to start and it gets uh, delayed. I can understand how that's bothersome, but, you know, if it's a pain in the ass for you, I really just suggest you listen in the archives. Then it's very easy. You can listen anytime and there's no waiting. Here's someone I thought might be able to join us. An early bird. Trader Ruski, hello. What's happening, Draft? When did you start the show? I started it later than I wanted. I started it at uh, around 1040. And we still have a lot to go. So it's going to be a long one, but it's not quite as long as it appears because it started kind of late. All right. Yep. All right. So we're going to move on to the next topic. Glad you can join us. How long do you think you can be here? Do you have a men's group or what do you have going on? Men's group starts in an hour. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, and I've been up for two hours. I wish I knew, but I should have checked. Yeah, I, I should have checked that you were there. I just kind of thought about it. I'm like, oh, you know what? Trader Ruski should be up now. In fact, he should have been up a long time ago. So yeah, maybe we'll get some other co-hosts out. I'm messaging all of them, letting them know we're here. That's going to just make it longer, but you know, whatever. People like long shows. All right. Let's move on and go on to talk about an update about Anthony Zeno. I've had requests for this. People saying, I don't know how this has ended. Tell me. I want to know. So, okay, I will tell you how this is going because there is an update. I have more information for you. He's made a statement. Remember, when we recorded the last show, I gave you all the details, but he had not yet made a statement. But he's made a statement, and he also listened to the last show. He told me this. He didn't really give much of a reaction Though it wasn't negative. Like he, he gave like a semi-positive reaction that at least he thought I was being like mostly fair. I'm sure he wasn't thrilled because I wasn't saying he was innocent, but he wasn't like hating me for it, or at least he didn't say so. So here's this short statement. This is from February 8th. I'd like to share some thoughts, and I'll provide all details after the legal matter finishes. And this is publicly on Twitter, by the way. This isn't just to me. We had all made it into the money which ended the day, this is referring to at the win. The ballroom was shut down for the night. I stood up to leave and then noticed a lost bag close by. My first instinct, it was a late night, was that I'd assume responsibility for the bag and get it to the owner myself, figuring that they went home. My goal was to find ID or verify ownership by some means, try to contact the owner or mutual friends, and perhaps meet somewhere on the strip or at the restart. Unsuccessful, I brought the back the bag back to Encore, lost and found, slept and then played day two, I absolutely deny what is being alleged, meaning that he stole money out of it. So, okay, let me go through that here. 
So he said that the day ended and the ballroom was, quote, shut down for the night, which I don't know what that means because he was still in there. If it was really shut down, then there'd be nobody there. He said he stood up to leave and then noticed a bag close by. I don't know if he's claiming this was at his table or near his table. So he claimed that he opened it. He didn't directly say this, but he says his goal was to find ID or verify ownership by some means. So he's basically implying that he opened it up to see whose bag it was, but that he was unsuccessful and brought the bag back to Encore to the lost and found. Now, that's important because why would he leave with it? Why would you just walk out at that point? Like, it's reasonable up till there that he sees a bag. It's like, oh, whose is this? Maybe it's someone I know and opens it up and sees if it's someone he knows. But why wouldn't you just pick up the bag, open it up in plain sight, see that you can't figure out whose it is, and then just bring it to Lost and Found right there? Why would you ever walk out with it? Why would you just take it out of Encore? Notice he doesn't mention the bathroom there. The story was that, and if you go listen to the last show, you'll hear the whole segment about this. The story was that he found the backpack and went to the bathroom with it, then brought it to the Lost and Found, and it was 19K light, that it had 20K in it, and he brought it back with 1K, and that they found him on the security footage doing it. He didn't leave his name at the Lost and Found, but they found on the security footage who it was, and then they confronted him about it at security, and, and the police came and all that and he's being investigated for petty larceny. He is not on camera stealing money. So his statement seems to be saying that he left and came back to Encore, that he actually left with the bag and came back to Encore. And the story from the victim is that he went to the bathroom. It was caught on camera taking the bag, going to the bathroom, and then walking to Encore. Now, it's possible that he did go to the bathroom just leaving this out. Maybe he went to the bathroom with the bag, left with the bag, and then came back and went to Lost and Found. He's just leaving the bathroom out of the story. I don't know why he doesn't at least clarify whether he was in the bathroom or not. Because the tape will show that. It's not like he's admitting to anything. But that's his entire statement. Now, without any witnesses or any camera catching him taking money out of the bag... The tough part is going to be, as I said last time, proving that there was 20K in the bag in the first place. Because what if there was only 1K and he stole nothing? That is a hard thing to prove. You'd have to have someone that can verify the cash was in that bag. Just taking the victim's word for it doesn't mean anything. In fact, the victim could even be confused and believe he had 20K in there when he really only had 1K. So in order to prove that 19K was stolen, there would have to be a way to prove that at the time that Anthony picked up the bag, which he's admitting he picked up, that there was 20K in it, and when he brought it back, there was 1K in it. But that's going to be very tough to prove, maybe impossible to prove. So I think that's why he's being investigated for petty larceny and not for any kind of felony theft. I think the larceny would actually be about stealing the bag, even though he brought it back. But this might be a hard thing to prosecute, because he did eventually bring the bag back on his own, and they can't prove he stole anything inside of it. So they might be investigating him for petty larceny, but I actually predict this is not going to go to be criminal charges, unless they choose to arrest him and see if he'll plead to petty larceny, threatening that they will try to press for more if he doesn't 
plead guilty at least to that. But I have a feeling they're not going to prosecute him. It's just maybe a hard case. I guess they can show that he left with the bag, and even if he returned it, that still could be considered larceny because he actually left the property with the bag. Of course, the question everybody has for him is, if you were really concerned about this, why didn't you bring it directly to security or directly to tournament staff? You know, you couldn't have been the only one in the room. And if you were, why didn't you find a staff member immediately? Why would you ever leave with that bag when you don't know whose it is? Why would you not bring this to security? It just doesn't make much sense why he'd actually leave the property with it. Something else was found, and is really not getting any discussion because it's not really being posted anywhere except on... Uh, Actually, it's not anywhere right now. I meant to post it on Poker Fraud Alert, but I didn't post it there. So here's an exclusive for you. Anthony Zinno actually has something else going on in the background. And this hasn't been revealed yet anywhere. But it's uh, public information if you search for it. So it's not as secret as you might think. But it is worth looking at. There is a civil court case involving Anthony Zinno, which has been going on for quite some time, which just went to judgment on January 29th. It's not related to this, because this goes way back before this incident happened. But this is Bank of America versus Anthony Zinno. And I'm not sure what they were suing him for, but they were suing him. So why would Bank of America be suing him? Well, presumably it's unpaid loans or unpaid credit card debt. But a judgment was rendered on January 29th, 2024. And this is a case that goes back to, looks like early 2023. Now, this alleged theft occurred in December 2023. So it was about a month before the judgment, more than a month before the judgment. But given that this case has been going on for about a year, and the judgment, by the way, was for uh, $78,479, and it looks like it went against Anthony Zinno. So given that he is seventy-eight k in debt to Bank of America, it looks like, from what I can see here, that would indicate a financial position which is not very good at the moment. And while this judgment came down after the alleged theft... It's not very far-fetched to believe that he knew he was probably going to lose this case and that the judgment would go against him, and maybe he was desperate to raise money. Now, he did win, I don't know how much he had of himself, but he did win 202000 at the Borgata in January, in early January. So that does make it more likely that this was a theft of money rather than the victim just believing that he had money in there when he really didn't. So you have to weigh all these things together. And, you know, normally I wouldn't publicize somebody's financial troubles. So let's say this all hadn't been alleged and someone texted me, hey, you know what I just saw? I just saw there was a 78K judgment against Anthony Zinno. You know, I'd be kind of interested going, well, that's surprising. But I wouldn't go post it on the forum and I wouldn't go broadcast it on this show, even if it's something you could publicly search, because, you know, if somebody's struggling, you shouldn't rub it in. You shouldn't shame them for it. But in this case, it's relevant. 
So this was something I just wanted to put out there for people trying to make sense of this to keep in their head as well. Now, I will say that even if he was struggling big time financially or expecting to lose this case, that doesn't automatically make him a thief. It is possible that just the timing was inconvenient, that he was about to lose this case, and then this backpack thing happened, and he didn't actually steal, but this makes him look bad. So just because you owe money at the moment to Bank of America doesn't mean you're going to go steal. And there is no proof he stole. But, you know, to be honest, this doesn't look good. To be honest, the story doesn't make a lot of sense. And as much as he'd like the story to go away, as much as he'd like people to forget this happened... The whole thing is just so weird. And if he did it, it's something that's pretty offensive. That when a backpack is left there by a stranger, that he would just take it out of the casino and then bring it back. And this is by his own words. He said he did this. I'm not assuming this part. That's kind of strange to me. I can't imagine why he would do that. Why would you leave the casino with somebody else's backpack? Even if your goal is to return it to them, why would you leave with it and then search through it? If I found a backpack lying there, the first thing I would do is look for someone on the staff. If I couldn't figure out who it belonged to, I might say, hey, anyone leave a backpack here? But if there's no one around that's a player, then I'd find someone at the tournament staff and say, hey, someone left a backpack here. What should we do? If I chose to try to identify the person, I would open it right there in plain sight. I wouldn't do it just because I wouldn't want any allegations that I'm trying to go through it, because it's not really my right to go through it. But if that's the course I'd be taking, I would do it right there in plain sight. So it wouldn't look like I'm doing it in a place where I could possibly steal from it. I'd say, well, look, if I was going to steal from it, why would I open it like right here in the room with all the cameras? I'm opening it to look for ID, and you could see if I steal anything from it. I wouldn't take it to the bathroom. I wouldn't take it out of the casino. That's for sure. It's just a weird thing to do. So maybe this was a moment of weakness where he just felt like the world was crushing him, financially at least, and he just kind of succumbed to temptation and made a mistake. And I know he can't admit to that because it'd be admitting to a felony. So I, if, if that's what happened, then I can understand why he's not admitting to it or giving a real coherent explanation. But I'm just saying, you know, you got caught. At least taking the backpack, that's the minimum here. Even you admit that. And people are going to judge that. And I'm not seeing a lot from you, Anthony Zeno, that's convincing me otherwise. I'm looking at this real objectively. I just can't see very much convincing me otherwise. The only thing I can't see is any direct evidence you did it. I'll concede there remains the small possibility that this is just a coincidence that happens to look bad for you, that you just made a mistake by taking the backpack out of there and that it didn't have the money the guy thought he had. I don't think this Corel guy's just making it up, but, I, you know, small chance that he thought he had 20K in there and only had 1K and forgot that he spent it or gambled it away or something. Small chance that someone at the Encore took it when they searched it and thought they could get away with it. You know, that wouldn't be impossible either. And I'm sure these will be explanations you give to the police of what you think may have happened. And this is what creates reasonable doubt. This is why it'll be difficult or impossible to convict you or maybe even prosecute you. 
But I'm just saying from a common sense standpoint, it doesn't look very good. So that combined with your financial need at the time, because let's say you had a lot of money still. Let's say uh, it was clear you were still very flush with cash as you were at one point. Then there would be the defense, why would I do it? I don't need the money. Why would I ever do something like this? But you know, clearly you were having some trouble at the time. Now, there's a lot of poker players, a lot of great poker players who've been in your spot who have very impressive records that just for whatever reason don't have money anymore. That's common in poker. But this was not a good thing. That's all I can say. It is unfortunate that if you want to apologize, that if you want to take responsibility, you can't without incriminating yourself for a felony. And that's that's a bad spot. That's uh, where it gets tougher than a lot of these other spots where people can admit to some kind of wrongdoing and know they are unlikely or very unlikely to ever be prosecuted. Whereas if you admit it, that might open up prosecution. That's the truth. So if you truly regret it, and this was truly like a one-time moment of weakness and you'd never do something like this, but you just were so depressed over the way things were happening and you just lost yourself for a moment and did this, and now you want to confess, but you can't because it'll put you in prison, you know, I can get that. But there's no way for us to know because you can tell us that. So I don't know. I don't know. It's just not a good thing. I'm also going to read you one more thing. This was found by the Poker Karen on Twitter, who recently exposed who he is. And he didn't say his name, but it's no one I recognized. And he pretty much looked like I expected him to look. He's a guy in his 50s. He's bald. I don't know. He just kind of looks like a dude in his 50s, a white dude in his 50s. That's what he looks like. That's what he is. That's what I expected. I knew he was in his 50s and he was a dude. So, like, there, there wasn't anything, like, was shocking about seeing the poker Karen. But anyway, he posted this. On 12-19-23, Corel Theuma con- contacted Las Vegas Metro Police. Theuma was the victim of grand larceny. Theuma stated that on today's day, 12-19-23, at 12.30 a.m., this is a police report, by the way, he placed a bag containing $20,000 of U.S. currency underneath his seat while playing poker at the Encore. Theuma stated that he had to use the restroom and left the bag and money behind. At about 12.40 a.m., Theuma returned to the poker room and looked for the bag. However, it was gone. So he's claiming this happened inside 10 minutes. Wow. At 6.45 a.m., Theuma contacted Lost and Found at the Encore. Theuma was informed by a hotel representative that a citizen unknown name had, quote, found the bag in the poker room. The bag only had $1,000 in it upon it being returned, and 19000 had been taken. Theuma was mailed a copy of this report. It was disseminated according to Las Vegas Metro guidelines. Supplemental. This is a supplemental to this report. On 12-19-23, at approximately 8 p.m., I, Officer Lassiter, operated as 3M18, I don't know what that means, when I was dispatched to an in custody at the Wynn Hotel in regard to event number blah 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 of 19,000 that was taken from the victim. I made contact with security who stated that a white male adult identified as Anthony Zinno returned the backpack at Encore Lost and Found. Security recognized the subject from their surveillance of Zinno taking the backpack. I observed the surveillance footage where in the video a white male adult matching the description of Zinno was seen at the poker table next to the table that the victim was playing. So I guess he was next to that table. The victim gets up and leaves as the room empties due to the poker tournament ending. 
He leaves the bag under the table and exits the room. That's referring to Theuma. Zeno then walks over and grabs the bag. Zeno walks quickly, passing several security guards, and exits the casino in a lift ride. Uh-oh. So that's not good. So Zeno actually walked past several security guards quickly and then got in a lift. Like, why would you not stop and say to the security guard, hey, this bag was left behind. What should we do? I made contact with Zeno, who has read his Miranda rights for my LVMPD 148 card at approximately 8.30 p.m., at which point he stated yes. Zeno stated that he took the backpack in hopes of returning it on his own without the help of security and police. Zeno stated that he only opened the backpack to check for identification. He observed an unknown amount of money in the bag but did not touch it. The bag was returned with $1,000 cash. Zeno stated that when he left the casino, he went to Cosmopolitan, where he thought about how to return it. That's kind of weird, too. Like <laughs> He didn't go home. He went to the Cosmopolitan. It's kind of strange, too. Like You take somebody else's backpack. You notice there's cash in there that you don't count it. You don't know whose backpack it is, even after opening up the backpack. And you think, okay, well, why don't I take a lift to the Cosmopolitan? <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's weird behavior, too. Why would he ever go to the Cosmo after this? Maybe that's where he was staying. I don't know. I don't know where he even lives. Maybe he doesn't live in Vegas. I made contact with the victim, Corel Thiuma, who was asked if he could provide me with any proof he had 19000 in the bag and stated he only had nineteen k to tip cocktail waitresses. Wait a minute. That's also strange. <laughs> what? What? This might be the strangest part of the whole story. Does Corel Thiuma really have that much money to where he had 19000 in the bag to tip cocktail waitresses? What happened to tipping them like a dollar or two? What is he tipping? Is he ordering like 10,000 drinks? Is he tipping like 500 bucks per drink? What is he doing? Like how much drinking can he do where he tips out 19K to cocktail waitresses? Does he think they're going to go up to his room and bang him for this? I don't... What? Have you ever heard someone carrying 19K around? There's actually 20 because there was still one in the bag that wasn't taken. So he could tip cocktail waitresses? I mean, this is either an error in the report or something's weird from Corel Thiuma. So I guess this is a small win for Anthony Zeno that Corel Thiuma can't explain why there was 20K in the bag. Because that makes no sense about cocktail waitresses. (laughs) What? What? And doesn't leaving 1K sound weird? Why would he leave 1K? I've been asked this by other people. That actually doesn't sound weird. Because if someone has cash in the bag, and you take most but not all of it, then it still has the same look. So, like, if he opened the bag at any point, and then there could be seen that there was some cash in there on camera and then that's referred to later, the camera's not going to be so good where it could tell that how much money was in there. So as long as some cash is still in the bag, on the camera it would look the same. So that's why it's actually not that dumb. It's actually uh, pretty but smart. 20K to 1K drop? I mean, it must have been a rubber band or something. He's not just having it in. If it's the tip cocktail waitresses, what denominations is it in? It's probably hundreds. That, that whole part is just so strange. I don't get that. But as far as the way it was stored, I don't know, maybe it is in bands, but if Zeno took it, he could have just undone all that and just left the money sitting there with 1K in there instead of 20K. 
And the truth is, like from a distant camera, it's just going to show at most there's some cash in there that's kind of blurry. So I don't think that's even that dumb if you do take the money. I just think. Right, the, but what? But how? Wait, how's the camera? I thought the money allegedly was taken out of the bathroom. Well, it that was the story originally, but uh, like he went into the bathroom with the backpack, according to Corral Theuma. I don't see anything about this on the reports, so and maybe that's erroneous. But the story at first was that he walked into the bathroom with a backpack and then returned it to Lost and Found. Zeno's own story and the police report state that he quickly left the premises in a lift and that he walked past security guards while doing it. So maybe the bathroom wasn't part of this. As funny as the bathroom part is, uh, it looks like the bathroom wasn't part of it. Maybe Carell got confused or something. But from what the police report says and from Zeno's own story, it was just that he left the premises and then thought about what to do and then came back and returned it. So I think that if he did steal it, there probably was no bathroom involved. He probably just took the lift somewhere else where he had some privacy, maybe even in a room in the Cosmo or the bathroom in the Cosmo, who knows, and then went through it, took 19 of 20K, and then went back there and returned it. That's the way I think it would have happened. And if you leave the 1K, then if Corell, the victim, opened up the backpack at any point in view of the camera, there would be money seen in there. So if he returned it with nothing then there would be proof that there was once money in there. But if you return it with some money, even not that much, then the camera probably could not show even if the backpack was opened under the camera by Carell himself in the past, then it really couldn't be shown how much was in there. So it actually wasn't dumb to leave a 1000 if if this was what happened. So then the officer wrote, Thuma could not provide officers proof that $19,000 was inside the bag, Due to the above facts and the totality of the circumstances, Zinno was cited for petit larceny, which is the same thing as petit larceny, and released. So it's not clear what they're going to do from there. The DA may refuse to take this. And in fact, he wasn't actually arrested and brought down to the station and booked. He was cited. It seems like they just cited him and said, we'll be in touch. And then that's the way it's standing at the moment, to my knowledge. But it doesn't look like he was ever brought to jail from this report looks like they're still investigating as i said the fact that he took the backpack walked past security guards and got in a lift and left the property there they could probably get him on petty larceny even if he went to return it later similarly if i walked into a store and stole something let's say something expensive enough to where that guy could actually be prosecuted for it because uh you know how it is these days, or if you steal less than $900 worth of stuff, they won't prosecute you in certain places, including L.A. But let's say I stole something worth $1,000. Let's say I stole an iPhone worth $1,000. And I left, and I've been home for 30 minutes, and I think, oh, you know what? This wasn't a good idea. I'm going to bring this back. And I come back and say, sorry, guys, I stole this iPhone. And they say, yeah, we know someone stole an iPhone. That was you. I go, yeah, yeah, I did it. Sorry about that. But I brought it back. Here it is. That doesn't get me off. They could still have me arrested and charged for this. So just coming back to return it does not necessarily get you off. Now, this can help with being prosecuted. This could help to where they don't prosecute you. This could help to where you get a lighter sentence or just probation or whatever it might be. But 
just returning something you stole voluntarily doesn't mean you get off for stealing it. So they could go after him this way. Say he stole the backpack. The fact that he came back with it is irrelevant, that he still stole it. And that they can show he walked past security guards and seemed to exit quickly as if he wanted to get out of there in a rapid fashion. So that might be what they eventually do, or they also might just say, you know what, we just don't have enough of your effort and just let it go. But it just doesn't look good. I mean, you add all this up, it doesn't look good. Everything described by the officer, everything described by Carell, which probably had some inaccuracies with the bathroom thing. And the thing I still don't get is about the cocktail waitresses. I want to hear about this from Carell Theuma, who won't make any more statements, by the way. But what's this about the freaking cocktail waitresses? How do you keep... 20k around to tip cocktail waitresses like how is this guy really that rich where he's just like tipping 500 bucks per drink what is he doing if i were zinno trying to prove my innocence i'd be hammering on this i go can you believe a guy who's saying he's carrying around 20k to tip cocktail waitresses like a guy who's claiming that do you think he has any credibility that's what i would say if i were zinno but then Zeno, you know, is right there in the police report and by his own admission that he took the bag and walked out. Possible lies about tipping cocktail waitresses notwithstanding, he definitely took that bag. There's no question about that. What a weird story. So that's where we stand. Wanted to give you guys that update. Well, you know why we're putting the music on at this point so abruptly? That's because the show wasn't really ending here. The show had plenty more to go, but the editing has plenty more to go. And we've taken long enough to get part one up there. So I don't want to take any longer. This show ended up over 10 hours when recorded live. There was one break in there. But yeah, it was pretty damn long. So I split it up, getting plenty of time in this first one, though. So it's like a full show. It's just half and half. So the second part will be just about as long as this one. And it'll come up in a few days if it's not already posted yet by the time you listen to it. I know some of you don't love the two-part thing. I've had my complaints. But you can think of it this way. It's almost like it is a weekly show. It's almost like it is a show that is now going twice as often. Because there's two episodes from every one. At least if you listen in the archives. You can just wait a week between them. It'll feel like a weekly show. It's all the way that you see it in your head. The reality of when I record it doesn't matter. If you don't listen live, who cares? So just wait a week between them. In fact, it's always a few days in between them, at least, when I post them on YouTube and in the podcasts. So just wait a bit longer. Then it'll feel like there's less distance between the episodes we do. That's one way to make it seem like I'm doing more shows than I really am. But I will try to do it closer to two weeks rather than three or three and a half. It's just once a lot of topics build up, I got to find the time to sit there and do like a nine, ten hour show. And sometimes it's not easy, especially if I'm not feeling well. Thank you for listening. I do appreciate those that are sticking with Poker Fraud Alert all this time, the new and the old listeners. Check out part two soon. Shalom. Shalom.